Welcome, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Renegade Detroit Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture and urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and listing agent with the Dealey Group, Keller Williams. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? Well, RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly, and right now we're meeting at Shields in Southfield. And this group is about networking and doing deals. The St. Your Grandma's Rhea, folks. No guru bullshit from the front. No smell of stale coffee, been gay, and or disappointment. We're here to get business done. RDI is also this podcast where I sit down uh, usually once a week with interesting and successful business people getting stuff done right here in Metro Detroit. And I pick their brain for your entertainment and hopefully also education. And I would like to remind you, if you do enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to go rate and review on iTunes. That's uh, also type something out. You'd be surprised how much that really helps and takes you very little time to do. For those listening, if you'd ever like to attend the local meeting, you can start by going to renegadedetroit.com, our website, or if you prefer social media, meetup.com forward slash investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. And as always, you can hit me up on Instagram at Jeremy Burgess, uh, same with Twitter at Jeremy Burgess. All right, legal disclaimer, in no way, shape or form should anything that I or my guest says today be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment decision or decisions, you contact a lawyer and or other licensed professionals. Be an adult, don't sue me. All right. Time for the Renegade Detroit Investors Show Quote of the Week. I try and pick a quote that sets a tone for the podcast and also your week. And this week's quote is direct from my guest. Embrace the contradictions and celebrate the chaos. That's embrace the contradictions and celebrate the chaos. And that's from my guest, Christos Graperis. Hopefully I got that right. Let me give you a little bio about him. He is the president and co-founder of Calitechnic LLC, CaliPay. His uh, 37-year career in technology integration and software development has included providing services to almost every business sector with an emphasis in recent decades on the challenges of payments and transaction flow integration. He's also formally educated in the behavioral sciences and computer sciences and received numerous certifications in the areas of computer network engineering, security, and finance. His background includes contributions in banking technology, wholesale distribution, just-in-time delivery, analytics modeling, EDI development, transactional processing and fulfillment, security authentication, local and wide area networking, com- computer telephone, telephony? Telephony. Telephony. Thank you, sir. Learn something new every day. Integration, data migration, and due diligence. Heterogeneous platform integration. Um, also, is oversees CaliPlay's pat- platform architecture and business development. He also manages the international expansion of CaliPay and just some of his other hobbies, too. He's a firearms instructor, security specialist, um, with many contributions to firearms and weapon platforms and improvements. And uh, he also owns a pretty cool old war vehicles, which we'll get to. It's just kind of like a hobby if you follow him on Facebook, which is uh, pretty badass. And he would like to just share his LinkedIn information. So in the description of the podcast, if you go down, if you want to reach out to him or you're curious or you want to hire him, whatever you want to do, I will include his LinkedIn profile link in the description. Thanks for coming out today, Chris. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So I don't know you that well, but I met you 
two years ago with another agent that I work with, and we had such an interesting conversation, and we ended up not doing that deal, but I never forgot that conversation. Then we became friends on Facebook. That's right. And that was back at the beginning of my podcast, and I was really trying to set some deep roots, trying to keep it more technical, more real estate related. And now that I have a bigger platform and I have a couple thousand people listening, I'm starting to branch out. Obviously, it's still business related and all that, but also some culture stuff and just some different perspectives on business and the world. And I thought you would be really awesome for this. So I wanted to start back at the beginning. I like chronological back at the beginning. So let's start with, and you pick, you pick the spot, but I want to go back far enough that I could talk about some of it when you decided to go to Greece and study. Cause you, you're actually, you're from two worlds kind of. So yeah, it's true. Yes. Yeah. Why don't you, why don't you share how that started and kind of slowly walk us through that and don't mind me interrupting too much. Okay. No, no, run with it. Yeah. Um, let me go back a little earlier. Okay. I'll fast forward from a much earlier day because as a child, I was quite uh, inquisitive, introspective, naive, idealistic, sensitive, a little bit of a fish out of water, um, a child to, you know, first born to Greek parents who were somewhat culturally um, dissimilar to my environment. Um, haven't been born here, but still brought up a Greek, learned Greek first. I... It made me what uh, sociologists like to call marginal. I did not fit, you know, the environment terribly well. And when we moved from Detroit at age seven, down by uh, Tiger Stadium there, to Southfield, which was then the country, it was a real shock for me. So I had I had a troubled childhood in the States, meaning uh, I didn't just go through life. I went through life looking, searching. You know, I was a bit of a um, an upstart in my later years, adolescent years. Uh, my father, as, a, as an aside, and I'd like to talk more about this later because it's intriguing that you, you know, you're intersecting with real estate. My father had a short stint with Chamberlain Realty as a part-time agent, and he didn't do very well at it. And I reflected on that a lot as well because he was a successful man as an automotive designer, draftsman, claim modeler, but he wasn't very good at that. So yeah, we'll get into that later. But um, uh, yes, I think my troubled... My exploratory period in the U.S. Um, was um, was capped with a, a wise decision of my father. My father turned to me one day after high school, um, and he said, "You know, it's time for you to go to university. It's time for you to go away to school." And when he meant away, he meant away. He said, "Remember how much you love Greece. Think you should move to Greece." And my father was very well aware that. Uh, you know, he had his own his own wisdom. I, he knew and he said that, you know, you, you better leave, otherwise you're going to end up dead or in jail, basically is what he said. It was, And he was right, actually. So you were kind of heading down the wrong path. You didn't fit in, you didn't feel apart, and you're going just the wrong way. And your I, dad is not happy. He's like, I, I don't like where this kid's going. I was scratching an unknown itch. It yeah. was, I was a sucker for adventure. I put myself into situations that I shouldn't have been in. I was taking jobs just because I could. I, I did, I had a lot of jobs and I was pretty good at many of them and I had acquired some skills. But for instance, one of the jobs I had before moving to Greece 
I was a repo man. I was repossessing cars. You know, you're the second person I've had on the podcast who's been in the repo business for a short stint, at least. That's interesting. See, that strikes me as pretty tough. <laughs> it was – there has to be something wrong with you. Yeah. Unless you, unless you literally can't do anything else. And I could do plenty of other things. But I wasn't one for conventional work at the time. I liked the, the adventure of it. You know, it was kind of a badass thing to do but i had situations and i between the knives and the guns and uh other encounters and dislocating my shoulder running away from an armed uh, you know vehicle owner it was interesting it yeah, was a that's character a little, builder. that's it a little was, hairy <laughs> yeah you know why why does one put one through that well we won't explore that right now you but weren't anyway. exactly <laughs> getting rich either though right no. so yeah so it had to be some adventure kind of it, it was it was an irrational existence it was uh, scratching itches I didn't know I had. And I did other things that were quite interesting that set the mood for later on. I was putting in um, audiovisual systems in discotheques. Uh, you know, I mean, there was some stuff I was proud of, and I I was already a uh, – I was a me- very good mechanic, and I began my motor vehicle collection days back then in the high school days. So there were many things, and I liked hands-on work. Um, I was good – I was already good with – Firearms, gunsmithing. I could make telescopes. I was president, uh, vice president rather, of the astronomy club in high school, and enjoyed making telescopes, among other things that I won't get into. So I was, <laughs> you know, I was, uh, yeah. It, I, I had that creative side, but I was totally unfocused, and I was bouncing from here to there and letting my whims and ego drive me. It, it was, it was a counterproductive existence. And I, I didn't. I hadn't reconciled myself with my place in the world at all, actually. Which is that's also like a coming of age story too, right? We all go through some of that to some extent. A little different from you. Interesting that you spoke Greek even before English, even being born in this country. So, kind of like almost like your parents made you slightly an outsider by keeping the culture, right? Keeping that part of the culture, so. Well, I mentioned that intentionally because it did have an effect on both my challenges and my success later on, the fact that I learned Greek first. It it really, that little thing, that little decision changed my opportunities later on in life. And these are the pleasant surprises in life that you need to leave room for. And that part of my belief system is don't over-control because life has a way of confronting you with opportunities as well as obstacles. And if you control too much, you overlook those opportunities. Well, that was one of the opportunities that I took advantage of later on. But um, rather than jump ahead, I guess I'll go through this chronologically. So I left for Greece. And uh, I left for Greece with a, I would say, suitably demoralized posture. And this is good because I was receptive to my environment. I was receptive to a new world. And I was leaving behind a vicious cycle. I was leaving behind behind a circle of maybe counterproductive friends and acquaintances. Um, And I was moving to a totally different life in a totally different world where no one really knew me except my relatives. And it was an opportunity. It was liberating. So the plan was that I would live with my 
uncle in um, Athens in a neighborhood where my father was born and grew up that was no longer a resort area as it was back during the war. It was now heavily populated, but it was the same area. It was like a couple blocks from the family home where my father grew up. And um, to set the backdrop, we have an older brother of uh, my father who bit of a rough cut guy, more so than my father, uh, worked in an airplane factory uh, where they made the uh, fire jets and things of that variety in Greece. And a um, an enforcer and mm. his wife from northern Greece, the Saloniki, who was the matriarch of the house, you know, very, very strong-willed, and three cousins, three female cousins, who were to become like sisters to me. Well, when that family got their hands on me, my sense of entitlement and alibis and um, being a victim of my environment totally went out the window. I was, I was in for an experience. I was being retooled. How to dress, how to act, um, how much to do for yourself, how much others do for you, the degree to which I could get away with things. Uh, everything had changed. Well, let's be explicit about some of these attitudes or behaviors I have. That way we don't just talk right over the, the heads of them. So when you came to Greece, how would you describe your attitude in more detail? Well, it's, it's really funny, but reflecting on it years after, after the transformation, um, when – here's the story that punctuates it for me, the difference between – uh, Detroit, growing up, and Athens. You fall down in Detroit, at least when I fell down in Detroit, hit a crack on the sidewalk, fall down. They pick you up and say, oh, look at that crack. Oh, terrible crack that, it, that you fell down. You fall down in Greece. It's like, what's wrong with you? Weren't you looking? <laughs> you should look where you're walking. Yeah, look where you're walking. And I looked around and no, and that's, that's a very serious comparison for me because I look at the way children were growing up um, even while I was an adult in Greece, sharp fences sticking out and cracks and um, obstacles. There are no sidewalks in Greece. They're obstacle courses. They're, they call sidewalks. Trees and sharp objects and dog turds. Greece is a minefield. It's a training ground. And, you know, you learn to <laughs> – survival of the fittest, yes. Um, you learn to adopt. And it makes you – it puts you in a more awakened state more more aware of your environment whereas here the guardrails and the curves uh, you know the curved surfaces and the padding on the furniture um, we've become uh, it's less compelling for us to be attentive here and that was literally what I what I remember I remember a pattern of uh, being coaxed into a synthetic what I consider a synthetic uh, existence where the world is at fault where the rules are artificial. You shouldn't have to, well, you shouldn't have to look both ways crossing the street. I mean, anyone in his right mind will. Physics dictates that the car will win. But no, you can just blindly walk across any street and because, you know, there's some rule somewhere that says the pedestrian has right of way that you don't even have to look. You're going to trust that that rule is going to serve you well. Well, in Greece, we know better. In Greece, as I've observed on occasion, the only laws that are uniformly, consistently enforced are the laws of physics. Everything else is negotiable. And that's really the case here, too. We have an illusion that 
the rules are absolute, the rules apply to everyone. So these are the contrasts that I that I was confronted with, that here, the environment was at fault. And there was something wrong with the environment that I didn't fit in. It wasn't me. And in Greece, I realized very quickly it was me. It was my attitude, my inability to have reconciled my belief system, my actions, with the realities of the world around me, as imperfect as it is. Can't blame the imperfection. So you show up in Greece, and this is like running into a brick wall, essentially, right? All these, these, for lack of a better term, kind of victim mentality, and then like a sudden stop, like almost like one of those, uh, you're trying to ride a bag through sand, right? You just er, come to a complete stop. Oh, yeah, and everything I'd come to believe. I mean, my mother was my greatest champion when it came to making excuses for me. And my father and I, who butted heads many times, very violently on some occasions, uh, he was the one who was trying to pull me out of it. And I realized that the the villain in my life was the hero, and the hero in my life was actually not doing me so many favors. So, yeah, that all changed. There was no one around to make excuses for me anymore. Well, it sounds like uh, your family, your Greek family, didn't bail you out. They were calling you out <laughs> right away, too. And you're like, what do you mean? <laughs> Tough love. Yep. Right out of the gate. Uh, okay. So sorry for interruption. I just want to put a finer point. I just want to gloss over it. And I just want to just poke it for those who maybe are, uh, need a little bit more, you know, less subtle. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I came to learn, you know, many of the fallacies I grew up with and some of them explicit and some of them, you know, suggestive over time, but they were all fallacies. And I learned I would, I enrolled in university in Greece in spite of having very, very bad grades coming out of high school. And I interviewed there and they took me in in spite of that spotty um, record, which was a blessing. It truly was. Um, but school was an hour and a half at least by a couple buses or a train, the other side far north in Athens. And I would literally go to school with enough change to get home and back in my pocket. And you know that if if you lose that change, if you have a hole in your pocket or you lose that change or you spend it, you're not going to get home. You've got like a five-hour walk home kind of thing. I mean, these things underscore the realities of being alone, being on your own. You know, there is no support system. There is no fictitious safety net. Get it done. You start to pay attention to the world around you. You start paying attention to your actions. Yeah, like the level of seriousness, which where it should have been, it's now approaching to where it needs to be, right? Like exactly. you think it's down here, and you're like, "Oh wow, I've been operating. This is a, this is an entire lie, and I yeah. need to be here." Okay. Exactly. You're a grown man. Damn it! You're 20 years old. Stop acting like a little baby, being coddled. If something goes wrong, it's your fault. That's exactly what it was, and it was it was fantastic. It it really changed my course. It was like a rebirth. So how did that look like in college? So, I mean, people are used to college here. I'm college is not exactly the same everywhere, but obviously you speak Greek, uh, but still leave one culture entirely and then go to school in another culture, which I have done. So I have some idea what this is like. I never did it college. I did it, uh, grade school. And later in high school, I went to an English school for fifth grade. And I went to uh, an American overseas school at Rome for my sophomore year. So 
I have some idea what that's like, but talk to me about your college experience in Greece and the impact that had. I'm very curious. Well, it's, it's funny. That's another, that's a significant dimension because college as we know it here has nothing to do with the experience I went through. I mean, after high school, I took a break. I didn't, I didn't travel to Greece until 19 and I turned 20 while there and enrolled and began college at 20, arguably. I think that's about right. Here, right after high school, in fact, in my senior year in high school, I had friends with an apartment in Ann Arbor, and we had we shared an apartment across from West Quad. I wasn't enrolled, but we were party animals in Ann Arbor uh, during that period of time. So I know the college scene. I knew the college scene well, I thought. Uh, A <laughs> little different, huh? <laughs> yes. And then uh, here I enrolled at um, a... Um, at the University of Laverne, it's called. There's there's a private uh, university, I think it's still there. Oh, it is still there, uh, in Laverne, California, that maintained at the time residence centers around the world for the diplomatic corps mm. and the armed forces. And since they were overseas, many well-off affluent foreign students so I enrolled. There were a number of universities in Greece at the time, a few of them accredited universities and some English-speaking colleges that weren't accredited yet. But um, a couple of big ones were University of Maryland, down by the sea, and then up north, University of Laverne, up, up in the mountains. Now picture this. Uh, picture a large hotel with grand marble staircase spiraling up four floors, some, like something out of the movie, something out of Gone with the Wind and then some. And picture this building is old enough that it served as the headquarters for the British intelligence in World War II and during the Greek uh, war against the communist insurgency. This was where a school was in this beautiful, grand building. Amazing. Um, and um, now imagine the mosaic of international students from literally all over the world, Nigerian princes, um, Cyprus, uh, you know, Greek-speaking Cypriots, um, English, Europeans from all over, uh, a few Asians, Americans from the armed forces, Americans from the embassy, and some Greeks. Now, the, the Greek situation was a little different because Greeks were prohibited by law at the time from attending the foreign universities in Greece unless you had an exemption from the government, from the minister of uh, education because of some special circumstance. So there were some Greeks at school. And uh, I mentioned that only because I met my, my wife, my future wife at the university. Um, but what we did not have was fraternities or dormitories. We had none of these things. We just had teachers from all over the world, essentially. Many Greek Americans and many Greeks who were educated in the U.S., and um, some spoke English better than others, but we had and you know English teachers. I remember my creative writing teacher, Elwin Jones was his name, snooty Brit who wore shirts <laughs> with paper collars. Literally, paper collars were still. I don't know if they're still. That's old they, school, right paper, there. He wore paper collars. First time I had seen a paper collar in real life, and he would chastise me for using words like "shant" in my poetry. I remember him well. Yes. Not fondly, but well. <laughs> no contractions or it's not poetry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently, yeah. Shant yeah. isn't, you know, 
was a little too archaic even for him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I saw the paper color. I thought he'd be all over it, but no. No. <laughs> oh, well. So the backdrop in Greece at this time, when were you, when were you there? When did you first get there? What year? And I arrived in 1979. So that's kind of the tail end of what I'm kind of getting at a little bit um, on our discussion and something, I don't know, it's kind of happening here, but like a little bit in the beginning, but something a little different about European universities is they've traditionally been a, I don't want to just say hotbed, but I don't know what else to say it. I'm going to say a hotbed of radical, uh, yeah, we'll say radical. That's probably yeah. the least, uh, <laughs> of radical, uh, political ideologies, right? And actually to the point where a lot of the Germans and the French, they would just ban universities. They would just like, it was like, it's, so this is like a multi, generational three or 400 year problem, so to speak. Uh, it's not just a institution of higher learning. Well, so. your, your observation is a little more applicable than even you may realize. Um, the, yeah, these were communist anarchist swamps in Greece. They were, uh, in fact, unfortunately, because the, well, I, w- I happen to be in Greece this summer of 1974 when the dictatorship fell. I was going to say, that's right. That's right at the end, right? That was the end of the dictatorship. One of the events that led to the demise of the dictatorship, which began in 67 and ended in 74, um, was the, the confrontation with the leftists at the Polytechnic University in Athens where a tank uh, drove through the barricaded gate and crushed a bunch of students mm-hmm. under the gate. And it's celebrated every year, November 17th, ever since. So the pendulum swung so much in favor of student rights. The universities are, to this day, I think only now it's being it's changing. There's some talk recently of... Uh, actually going to the universities to enforce some laws, the schools, the universities have been considered sanctuaries outside the law. Well, that's not Since good. then, it's been that bad. And we, we have anarchists, Molotov throwing anarchists, throwing Molotovs and throwing, running into the school. And there are things going on in there that the police can't touch. Yeah, we should probably say these yeah. aren't like Facebook communists or no, no. anarchists. Like... I don't like you and you share a shitty capitalist meme. These are like overthrow the government, riot, burn things down, use intimidation and violence to get votes. And like, like it's well, the, the real, real deal. The real world of acti- activism we're finally seeing here with these um, – with the uh, – uh, what do they call them? Um, um the uh, Antifa, whatever they are. Yeah, Antifa. Yeah, kind of an American um, joke, but it's beginning, right? Well, it's it's like communism light, you know. Well, it's not nothing light about it, um, but that's another. That's a that's for another day. But basically, that is a light version of exactly what we were confronted with: knives and clubs, overt violence, uh, in order to suppress anything that was counter to their agenda. It has nothing to do with right and wrong. 
it was all animalist self-interest. Um, the animal world, you know, comes to the city, you know, tribalism and uh, animal instincts, you know, rule, period. And that, that's what it is. That's all it was. It was all a raw game of self-interest. And that's what we're seeing here. Just same thing. So you were going to school at the end of this because one of the conversations— It wasn't the end at all. Yeah, it wasn't that— And that's what I want to— Yeah, okay. I, I don't want to get to it too soon, no, but no, I don't no, want to miss it. It wasn't the end. So, it was actually yeah. the beginning, unfortunately, uh, because I arrived in Greece. Now, here's uh, here, here's the good story. Here's there the story we go. I love. Okay. Um, <laughs> I get to Greece. I'm going through this transformation, you know, a broken individual. But there was a lot to me, it turned out. I had a chance to see what I was made of. And I had actually cultivated some pretty good skills, it turned out. And let's see if I can go through the, the bullet points of the of transformation. One of the first things that happened was I realized very quickly, I didn't realize it, there, something happened to me. Um, keeping in mind now that my, um, my grades in high school looked like an electrocardiogram. A's and D's, A's and E's. And it was based on my self-indulgent interest in a given course. I was totally self-serving. I couldn't discipline myself to learn something or pay attention to something I wasn't interested in. Well, when I got to university, suddenly I was just interested in learning. It didn't matter what it was. It literally didn't matter. Knowledge for the sake of knowledge suddenly mattered to me. I don't know what happened. I got hit by a lightning bolt. God's grace. I don't know what happened, but I totally changed in terms Birthplace of Birthplace of Western civilization, maybe, you know, yeah, who I knows? Know, I don't know what it was, but I was a sponge and I was learning. And the fact that I had tremendous recall suddenly came to light because I came out of three and a half years of university. It was accelerated um, with maybe notebook, four inches high to notebooks. You know what one what everyone else would use in one term, I used across my entire <laughs> undergrad uh, because I would just sit there and listen, and I absorbed everything and retained everything, and I I wrote very few notes, very little in terms of bullet points, just to kind of anchor certain subjects. And it's amazing the recall that I had just simply because I was engaged. So that was the first thing that happened. Very strange. The second thing was I remember the first day of the second term, uh, November 21st, I think it was. Uh, here we are upstairs in front of the office, and I had met a couple of friends from California, and we're standing upstairs on the third floor of this grand building, as I mentioned. And, you know, there are two narrow, very tall doors, you know, kind of half doors. We're talking three-meter-high doors, right? The hotel, and that's the office. And I hear the door, very creaky door, and I was still kind of paranoid from the streets in Detroit, and I would jump at every sound kind of thing. So I look over my shoulder and I see this gorgeous, light-haired brunette entering the office and she kind of gives me a look. I give her a look. I turn away and I do a double take. And as I do a double take, she does a double take. Well, it turned out to be my wife of now. So that was it. Sparks flew. Now, she was Greek, right? But she was there because she had received one of these special exemptions because her father happened to be chief of the national police. And when she went to the university, she was held captive by the leftists at the university for I don't know how long. And uh, she wasn't safe there. She was, it was clear that she was going to be a target ongoing. So she was given one of these special exemptions. Man, that's pretty sobering. Just, yeah, it is. That's, 
That's not that long ago, mm-hmm. man. That's not that long no, ago. No, it's not that long ago. This was 1979, November of 79. And, um, well, we met, long story, I won't go into long romantic story, but we ended up um, studying together and then becoming something of a unit over time, clearly. And to fast forward a little bit, this was, uh, we had we had what was called at the time the conservative right-wing government in Greece with, that we all belong to. Um, my family, her family, um, she was the um, general secretary of the youth party of the conservative party. Well, it turns out no one was going to, later on, I realized as I studied these things that there's never been a conservative party in power in Greece. There are just degrees of control and interventionism and cronyism and what have you, but they were the more right party at the time. That's kind of Europe, right? You almost have it to say kind of Europe, exactly. more right instead of right. And that's significant yeah. because when we, when we judge the free market in order to judge the free market, you have to make sure you're, talking about a free market. It's very hard to find an example of a free market today. We don't have one here, that's for sure. And they certainly never did in Europe. So trying to judge the merits of a free market and free market capitalism is very difficult without an actual working example. But that's maybe something we'll explore later. Well, knowing what I know about it, they're not exactly the free market type, I would say. Oh, yeah. no. Yeah. And that's kind of the opposite, right? Quite the opposite. And that's yeah. what set the mood for my move back to the United States later on. That's why I came back. Um, but anyway, just to um, – where was I? Ah, yes. So we met. We became a unit beyond classmates, and we spent our courtship in the streets – before the big, the epic election that brought the socialists into power in Greece, we were in the streets at night, hanging banners, putting up posters, and literally fighting the communists and the socialists. Fighting, not figuratively, literally fighting them. Real political protecting violence. Protecting our youth, real political yep. violence. They would put you in the hospital for putting up posters in the wrong places or putting up posters over theirs, God forbid. It was a turf war for visibility. And it was all about intimidation. And I remember I was alone one night. Now, after my first year, just to fast forward, after my first year living with my um, aunt and uncle and cousins, I did find an apartment close to closer to where um, the university was and my girlfriend was, a suburb further south. And I was living by myself in this little penthouse studio. And on the way home, one day I saw these communist posters on one of these cement telephone poles. And I started ripping away at it. Well, some of these leftists saw me and they circled me. And it's like, okay, now here I am, you know, well-versed in street altercations. Uh, But I learned how savage these people were. And I was one and they were like six or seven. And I actually backed down. I think it's one of the first sensible things I'd done. Because a couple of years earlier in Detroit, I just would have had at it. Yeah, maybe you don't come out on top, those exactly, kind of numbers, I right? That this, I, I'm starting to realize the cause and effect of life. You know, no one to take me to the hospital. You know, life's a little different here, and I felt alone. I didn't feel a false sense of security. And I, I felt alone, and I felt demoralized after that. I felt conflicted after backing down. I really did. I felt very bad about it. Sure, it gives that. you a bad taste. Well, I know, personally, I got jumped by 15 guys 
my freshman year when I was going to boarding school. And I made the decision in a split second just to get my ass beat because I figured there was a better chance if I didn't fight back. So I have some idea, but at least I live somewhere where there was still more like a rule of law. In your case, you were completely on your own. You couldn't even count on because either it depends on who finds you, right? The left or the less left, I guess we'll call it. It's hard to call it right, right? But uh, Well, you can call it the right, but you can't call them conservative. Yeah, that's right. I think right. that's probably the best. Okay, so the right, right? Yeah. So it really mattered who responded to that. So you were totally, completely, utterly alone with this taste in your mouth. Indeed. Mm. It, was, it was a sobering milestone. Uh, I, I, I second-guessed that, and I felt, you know, my – my ego was bruised. Did you have to talk your way out of it? I or, did. I had to yeah. talk my way out of it, apologize. I didn't know, play the stupid American, blah, blah, uh, blah, this, that, okay. the other. It was it was an interesting lesson in acting, kowtowing, negotiation. And, you know, it, it – That was a high-stakes negotiation, Oh, man. it was. Oh, it was. Yeah. Because I had to be believable. And you're like 20, 21? I'm 20. I'm 20 yeah. at this point. Yeah. It was very interesting. But you know what? You learn a lot about – Yourself in those moments. I tell you what, and, and it's not something I mention to a lot of people, but now as we go through the chronology, I remember that as being one of the moments that sticks. Um, but yeah, it was for keeps. Suddenly you realize that survival is a real thing. You know, your ego takes a back seat. Your ego is worthless if you're dead or incapacitated. Especially so. 20-year-old ego, right? I remember how right. precious my 20-year-old yeah. ego was. Never, never. Nope. I guess this time I'm saying not never. <laughs> yeah. No joke. I still, you're right. I still sometimes think about that decision and my poor little ego wonders if it could have turned out differently. It's like, and now I got a lot of distance from it, but at the time I was pretty, I did not like the decision at all. Thinking back, that's a very interesting point. I think, man, that's scary. I don't know what I would do if I couldn't even walk down the street without political violence. Just taking off a poster means you get your ass beat or sent to the hospital. Right. What was that joke? Um, I think it's a, it's a Christopher Hitchens joke. So ignore the reference when he was talking about the uh, Northern Ireland, Ireland thing. And he said he was an atheist or it's like a joke is that you're an atheist where you a Protestant atheist or a Catholic atheist, right? So exactly right. (laughs) you were in kind of that situation like, wait a second, are you the left left or not quite as far left? We need to know this because whether you get your ass beat right now really depends on your answer. Yeah. Yeah. I had to throw in that little joke there. Well, no, curious minds want to know, of course. And uh, I came to understand during the course of many altercations that actually the socialists that were fighting for – you know, the candidacy of their of that criminal demagogue, Papandreou, came into power, were actually more savage than the communists, which was a surprise to us because they're supposedly less left, but they were far more rabid in terms of their, uh, you know, their, their response. Perhaps because the stakes were higher for them. They were, the communists were never going to be in power. They were, they were making trouble. They were never going to get their candidate in government. Um, but they just like hurting people who disagreed with them. Whereas the, the socialists, the Pashok youth, especially, and not so many, not just youth. I mean, there were just some real enforcers in that group that didn't care who they hurt young boys, young girls. So we ended up having to put together our own teams of, uh, bravos. We call them who would run around protecting our, our youth that were hanging posters and stuff like that. We, we actually had protection teams 
what a mess. I just thinking back, I just kind of, you know, it's bringing back memories. That was some savage stuff going on. I can't even imagine. I am a student of history. I don't read as much as I would like, but I did brush up before our uh, little interview here. So I would have some idea of what we were talking about just so it was fresher on the mind. And it's pretty terrifying. It's pretty terrifying. Just even a, a, a glancing view at it, trying to imagine myself in a situation where not only do I got to figure out how am I going to start my life and what kind of job I got, but now I got to worry about one side or the other and where I lie and the stakes are insanely high. You can get your ass beat. You can get crippled. You can not get a job. You can be locked up for three months. You could be tortured. They could take a family member. Like it's just absolutely terrifying to think about and essentially the birthplace of democracy and Western civilization. It shows how far you can fall and it can happen to all of us too. So kind of like that whole loop thing, like not me, right? Not here at the same time, but birthplace, right? Why not here? Why not yeah. there? It's kind of a strange idea to get your head around, but and the, the, the fallacy of civilization, we're too civilized for this. We're too civilized for that. Never say we're too civilized to, to be savage, to be destructive. Never say we're too civilized. That's the mistake that allowed these atrocities happen over the course of history. The fact that we believe they weren't possible. It's amazing. But, you know, the reality is, I mean, I, I think back to the scenarios and the stories, but here we are, my wife and I are growing together. You know, my, my girlfriend and I are going through this together. You know, it's it, it was it was an interesting dating scene. Let's put it I'll that just way. just say, like, it that's... Was great. You know? There's probably not... Well, yeah. I guess in Greece, there might be more than one of those stories, but to the American ears, some international, but mostly Americans listen to this. Yeah, that's going to... I don't think it registers. It's like American culture or nothing, right? Like, yeah. there, like there's not other cultures or in this world or other... Like, <laughs> yeah. what do you mean this happened? Yeah, it's not even that long ago, right? Just yeah. just a, a blink yeah. in time. We did go on regular dates as well, though. Yeah. I mean, just for the So record. you did take her out to movies and a dinner, too? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Dinner and a movie and a riot. So we're just fighting commies. Dinner and a movie and a riot, yeah. <laughs> so, um, dinner and a movie, that's right. Dinner and a movie and a riot. No, no, no. Some of my most nostalgic moments, fast forward uh, a few years, uh, she's working. She's working at a hotel in Athens, down by the center of Athens called the Titania. And I'm working... At Citibank, fast forwarding, you know, after university came back to the U.S. US for grad school interviews, and Citibank found me somehow. I ended up going back to Greece to work for Citibank. So I was there longer yet. I didn't move back to the States yet. Um, and I would go to pick her up. And the universities were straight down the street pretty much. At the intersection below where her hotel was, I'd go to pick her up. And we'd be down by the corner uh, grabbing a taxi to go into the north suburbs where we lived. And uh, down the street, I would see the Molotov cocktails flying and mm. the tear gas and the police, you know, the anarchists and communists throwing. And that was such a romantic, nostalgic moment for me because here I have my fiancé in my arms. You know, I'm giving her a kiss and we're, you know, on our way home. And I look down the street and see the pretty lights of the Molotovs. So it's like <laughs> the ambiance of a nice riot, you know, backdrop for a nice romantic, you know. Puts off a nice glow. Yeah, yeah. exactly. The you look beautiful in the fires tonight, baby. Yeah, you know. So when people say Molotov, I have this little warm feeling, this little nostalgia. Just you know, hey. It's crazy to think of you actually getting an education at the same time. But I guess life goes on even during these quasi-revolutions too, right? Like you're trying to hold together 
some semblance of normalcy, right? When you go to take your girl on a date and you could watch a riot and multiple cocktails getting thrown and like still trying to do something semi-normal, like get an education plan for the future, take your girl out. It's kind of a crazy. Well, you've hit it on the head. What is normal? Yeah. What is normal? Are we here the exception or the rule? You know, more and more I came to understand that the United States is the exception, both in good ways and bad ways, but certainly not the rule, certainly not didn't represent the history of man. And surprisingly little has changed in terms of the dynamic of how um, power deals with the population and how those in power, you know, live versus those who don't have power live. Interests versus principles. What are the ethical boundaries that limit power and self-interest, if they exist at all? Do they exist? Are they an illusion? And these are the things I ran into over there. I mean, I didn't have such a subtle eye to understand, to see them here. There they were overt. You know, the good thing about the European experience and the Greek experience was that at least they were honest about it. At least they were sincere about the cronyism and the self-interest and the, you know, promoting family members and the favor trading. It was out there in the open for everyone to see. And I celebrated it for about a minute because it so happened that both sides of the equation, both my family and my uh, girlfriend to become fiancé, to become wife, her family, very influential, new people and open doors. But at the same time, I was growing intellectually i was becoming effective in many ways and i was you know doors were opening for me because of names it's like going mentions you know so and so you know we'll see you because of so and so and so and so it's like great but and they didn't give a damn how good i was i could have been a brick uh, of the same name knowing the same people and they would have let me in i'm thinking wait a minute i was beginning to resent the fact that people weren't looking at me for me they're looking at me for my name or who i knew began to realize that cronyism wasn't so good after all. Not not if you embrace a merit-based existence. And that was one of the first um, moral crises mm. I faced was understanding the dual standard system, understanding the, the ruling class, understanding the role of influence, understanding... Um, that you couldn't live a mixed metaphor. I couldn't. I couldn't pretend I was uh, I was married to excellence and growth, yet rely on the crony model to open doors. Yeah, too much cognitive dissonance, right? Exactly. Like, at least for me. At wait, least for who someone, am I? Do I really believe this? Reconcile, wanted to reconcile his existence. I mean, there are people who live that way. It does They're, seem to be easy for some people to do one thing and say another. I have some friends like that, you know, that like – they sound commie, but when you meet them in real life, they operate like a capitalist. You're like, uh, how do you reconcile this, these two, uh, your thought versus reality? I don't understand, but it doesn't seem to be difficult for some people. Well, I think that's pretty much all communists. An, an acronym I learned in Greece very quickly was the triple L, the triple lambda, which is the typical Greek communist. Um, and it, the L stands for Levi's, Lenin, and Lacoste. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they they would, you know, it espoused Lenin, but they were wearing Levi's and Lacoste. Reconcile this for me. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's, oh yeah, like 
I like to say, like, everything sucks. You should give me money on an iPhone, you know? Yes, like, exactly. Post it on social media. Yes. Yeah, that's like the 2019 version of the same mm-hmm. thing, yep, right? Exactly, exactly. Not as well put as you did. It was pretty funny the way you did it, but just try to bring it back to the viewers. Yeah, yeah. it's like I, that. I, I didn't listeners. create that one. I learned that one. That was, yeah, I can it's still funny. the street for that. Yeah, yeah. It's the still funny. Communist. So. so you get out of school, and that's funny that you do that. So even though it's benefiting you, these principles over preference kind of starts to ruin your life a little bit. And then you got to think about it and be like, wait a second, do I just go along with this or do I do something about it? And it like, it create all this chaos within you. These confrontations were great because without these struggles, you don't learn who you are. Some people avoid these struggles all their lives. Bad for them. Too bad for them really. But um, I don't resent any of them. It was good. That, it was good that they happened. But not, let me let me share something else, though, because during these bad things, good things happen as well. And that's why the Greece is such a contradiction. And that's why I've come to believe, truly, one must embrace the contradictions, because within the contradictions, you will find the truth. It's all, there's always a complementary, almost contradictory reality that will allow you to reconcile your philosophy, I believe, at least in my case. As a Gemini, which I am, but anyway. Um, <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> um, so th- now let's jump back a little bit, all right? Now keep in mind that I am a spoiled child. Acknowledged, spoiled child. And I wasn't going to sit in my austere state for very long, so I started to exercise my entrepreneurial side very quickly. This is while you're in Greece, right? While I'm in Greece. Yeah. While I'm in the university. And, you know, I, as I mentioned, I'm traveling, I'm traveling to school with coins in my pocket, and this was not my way. So it was time for me to empower myself and do something about it. And rather than beg the family for money, which wasn't going well at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> it was time for me to revisit my skill set. So I realized very quickly that I had two skills, actually more than two, but the two that became apparent very quick, very quickly was my rather well-articulated mastery of the English language. I could teach conversational Greek to Greeks, lawyers, doctors, students, for really was good money. It was good money getting private lessons, you know, giving private lessons just conversationally, sitting and talking. And my, my mastery of the language turned out to be better than most. And typically, they avoided Americans because Americans were kind of sloppy in their speech. They preferred the English. Much hasn't changed, I'd uh, say. Well, yeah. Maybe a little bit. Two countries separated by a common language. Is that yeah, how it goes? that's yeah. about right. Two yeah. nations separated by a common language. Americans, I complain about all the time. We're very lazy about how we choose our words. And I try and choose them very specifically and certainly. And it never goes well for me. Like you're always having two conversations: what they say and what they really mean. It's like it's very challenging. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I encounter that a lot, but it's good. Make them expand their horizons. Continue doing that. You know, it's it's good for your environment. Might not be so good for you, but it's, it's bad for my marriage. I kind of had to pull back there. Okay, I won't correct with that. Never mind. Yeah, <laughs> I love you, Oops. wife. I'm just yeah. kidding. <laughs> There's a padded suit they wear when sparring. Maybe you should wear it. Yeah, you- I just learned to stop. Like, pick your battles, you know. Do I really exactly. care about this word? Yeah. Yeah, no, no joke. I, I go through a few of those. I have some funny stories about those. But, um, so yeah, so I started giving lessons, which puts some pocket money in my pocket. But more importantly, I realized that I was a very good 
uh, alarm and, you know, wiring installer and what have you. I, but I did a lot of alarm work. You know, some of my role models growing up, uh, I had a couple of older cousins in Chicago that taught me some lessons. They didn't think I was watching, but I was watching. And I saw one build a successful alarm business. I learned some stuff from him. And I actually worked as an alarm installer. And one of the jobs I had was installing alarms in both commercial and residential settings. And I had a really good hand. I, I really did have, um, you know, a, an attention to detail. And I was a bit OCD about how things looked. I had the right skills for my new career in Greece, putting in high-end alarms in villas and mansions and estates for the upper crust that lived around the school, you know, in that, the area where the university was, and friends of my girlfriend's family and others referred from the school. So I began installing alarms. Here's what I did, and this was great because I, I began using my skills as a researcher. I took a job as an installer with a local alarm company for a few months where I was the star. Now we had this American alarm installer and they were putting me in front of people, you know, and selling systems that were a bit inferior, but I learned about all the suppliers. Where do you find the wire and where do you get the alarm panels? And I realized there wasn't a lot there, but there were some pretty good sources. Oops, sorry. That's okay. This thing just, I silenced the phone, but it just doesn't want to, uh, so yeah, you got to put it on airplane mode. Yeah, I know. yeah. Otherwise, uh, they do that now. They they go out of their way. To... Mode is some making bad jokes like uh, Victor bad day to quit sniffing glue. <laughs> <laughs> Should have told me I wouldn't have done it before we got started. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Um, so keeps me sharp. <laughs> so basically, I learned everything there was about the local alarm market and learned what the competition was, and then I broke off on my own. And I started putting in these high-end alarms that no one had ever seen before. I'm building my own zone systems to augment, you know, the local supply. And I'm burying wires behind molding when everyone else is tacking them to the wall. Industrial style. So I'm, I'm making a fortune now as a student putting alarms in part-time. And fast forward, um, you know, when I came back to the States to interview for grad school, my father was resentful. He would, he would mock me. He was calling me the student prince because I had violated the objective of an austere life as a student. <laughs> apparently, I wasn't. Apparently, I had broken the rules. By um, he wanted you to suffer a little bit more. Exactly. I guess, huh? And apparently, I just didn't. You know, I just didn't bite the bullet and suffer as I should have as a student. Well, it seems like, though, you suffered enough to make you go do something, which is the point, right? Like, I guess not with him. him. Apparently, suffering, apparently, I didn't do it the way he did it. You know, apparently, I was supposed to go through this period of, what what was it, penance? Maybe. Maybe I deserved more. Well, actually, looking back, not maybe. Yeah, I deserved far worse than I got. I can't explain how... You know, I got. I, I know I've got better than I deserved in life, and I count my blessings. I don't take it for granted. But yeah, but apparently, I remember him to this day. I remember him. This, look, the student prince, and he was mocking me because I broke the rules. I'm saying, hey, wait a minute. Life is about breaking the rules. As long as I realized that if I replaced the ego as my compass with a moral compass, the moral boundary, everything else is fair game. Everything else is fair game in terms of creativity, innovation, 
as long as you have a moral boundary, as long as you understand what that moral boundary is, self-interest is not a bad thing. Uh, and that's kind of what set the mood moving forward. A, a more clearly defined sense of morality, significant. The golden rule is significant. I, I, I frequently say, is this golden rule compliant? I mean, the golden rule is everything. I mean, you look at the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is really the golden rule for dummies. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. I mean, you know, it's, it's really what it's about. So anyway, so that's where I landed. But I landed with um, a, an unbridled sense of innovation <laughs> that um, my father penalized me for. But anyway. Uh, Welcome to the club. Yeah. Governments do that to this day, right? Wait oh, a second. Yeah. You found a better way to do something, but these guys give us money, right? So you're figuring this out. It started with your dad, but yeah. essentially the same thing, right? Yeah. Yes. But now here, let's circle back. Not about me, but about Greece. We talked about the contradictions I learned there. Some of them were good. I learned what, did, what was good about Greece. Already we reviewed a couple of things. To recap, um, Greece taught me that there is no nanny state. It's an illusion. Um, Greece taught me something else. I mentioned these entrepreneurial adventures of mine because I realized in Greece there was a parallel universe. As socialist and asphyxiating as the government was with market controls, there was really no such thing in that day as unemployment. There were jobs that were like day jobs. No one sat back and said, oh, I'm unemployed. They went out and said, hey, can I do something for you? Can I deliver something? Can I sell something? And there was a huge gray market economy where people were being paid under the table. It's like, this is what life is really about. Are you hungry? Are you idle? Get off your butt and do something. Offer something. So I see street vendors. When I see street vendors, I don't resent them. I resent the people who sit on their butts saying, woe is me. Pay me money. You know, the government pay me money or give me this, give me that. I don't resent people working, you know, in informal jobs because at least it's work. And I learned that in Greece. And I learned that the reality and the hypocrisy of this doctrine, you know, this socialist doctrine is that there's always a parallel universe. But in Greece, the Greeks had that pride. They had that striving, that that sense of, you know, the need to survive. And they were working. I'm not saying it was glorified work by any stretch. But I saw the hustle, and I appreciated the hustle. It's like, yeah, this is how it's done, and I was part of it. I was part of the hustle. I'm working under the table, you know, putting in these systems, cobbling these things together, you know, that no one's ever seen before. I was breaking the rules. I had entered the parallel universe of the innovative, creative Greek, and that's really what being Greek meant to me. And that's what I learned is that there are two kind of Greeks. There are the stifling, bureaucratic, government pay me, I want a government job for life Greek, and there are the innovative Greeks who – strive and hustle, the creative Greeks that you see everywhere in the world today. Uh, literally everywhere you see Greeks um, pushing the envelope in various fields, and you know that they've got that hustle going on. You know, you've got that creativity, that, that spark inside them. And that caused me to reflect on the fact that the U.S. had already, it was already becoming something other than what it was intended to be. I was born too late to see it. I, had, I was reading about it. I was learning it in school. I was learning what you know, the belief system uh, was intended to be as, um, as expressed by the Constitution. I learned about the worth ethic and uh, learned a lot about free markets. I learned to rationalize my beliefs, my gut. 
And my gut was already in tune because in even before school, you know, even before university, I was offended by what I saw around me as a young man. I saw the quotas of the early EU, the EEC, European Economic Community, uh, and the oppression they were imposing on the member states. Greeks, Greek was an early member, one of the charter members of the EEC. And I remember when Greece had met their quota in oranges, and the Greeks were obliged to destroy their orange crop. Which is insane. And even as an uneducated adolescent, I knew there was something wrong with forcing a country to destroy its wealth. Dude, we still do it here with really? cherries, and there's some weird stuff we do here. I don't never understand how they thought that by destroying wealth, which is what fruit is, wealth, like all, right? Exactly. Did you make anything better by destroying wealth, right? Right. No, you protect other people's interests by doing that. Correct. That's what you do. Yeah. Making winners and losers. Yep. And that's what they were doing. They said, well, and then it happened a few years later with the milk. Greece, you've got to spill your milk, so everyone has to buy from the Dutch. Really? This is your new world. This is your Europe. This is your economic prosperity. This is benefiting someone, but it's certainly not benefiting any of the citizens. And what I came to understand is that the European Union, as it is today, was based on interventionist socialist principles, intended, as is all socialism intended, to benefit the ruling class, those at the top, part of the crony state, the corporations, giving them free markets in dissimilar circumstances, and pitting workers one against another across these borders. Yeah, it never seems to bother them that if they're fucking an orange farmer in Greece or in Spain or in North Africa, like supposedly for being for the worker, you know, it just never made sense from the get-go. I lived in Italy, which wasn't quite as bad as that, but same thing with the, I call it a black market, but I like your gray market idea because it was more gray than black. So I'm going to steal that and deploy it. There you go. Yeah. There were like the dichotomy, right? They were the government worker and then this, you need to get anything done. You got to go gray, you know, that you say black, but you got to go gray to get it done. Same sort of thing. And that was as a teenager and it left a lasting impression on me. I will never for forget just how poorly things actually worked and ran and how people would pit it against each other and just fortunately not a lot of violence like Greece at least when I was there in the early 90s you know I got lucky there wasn't a lot of riots or anything like that but yeah it never seemed to bother him that they would take supposedly the people they were helping and pit them against each other to stay in power just and it happened as far as I can tell all across Europe in different instances in different ways and everybody seemed to be on board with it too like i was a crazy one that was the part i, I couldn't stand isn't that amazing it, that they're married to yeah their circumstance they don't understand how wrong it is they're poor they're yeah. getting barely any money from the government they're scratching out a living and they can't go sell the lemons or do all like they just can't do these things they just can't yeah. or they gotta do it on the gray market exactly it's it's just wrong making good people be criminals which exactly. just Though, blew my mind it did blew my mind and it continues to enrage me. It doesn't blow my mind anymore, but it continues to enrage me when I see the injustice of of inconsistently enforced laws. Now, here's the trick. Here's what I learned. Uh, there's an expression, and these are Greek expressions that precede me. Uh, one expression goes, in Greece, everything is allowed and everything is against the law. Uh, that's literal. 
The trick is with oppressive governments is that everything is against the law, but they don't enforce the law, but they can go and grab anyone anytime they want. Yeah, like China. Literally anyone yeah. is a criminal. All they have, all you have to do is step out of the line and they'll come and get you. And you're going to have to step out of line. Otherwise, you're not going to. Well, if you, if you raise yep. your head up and go against the, the powers that be, you've stepped out of line. If you play nice, sometimes you're a victim even if you haven't offended anyone. It's just the nature of the beast. It's the animal kingdom. An animal is going to be the victim. There are predators, and the government's the predator. The government and the crony state are the predators. If they want what you have, you may be innocent. You might not be bothering anyone, minding your own business. You might be the the elk that gets chosen, you know. Um, and that's just the nature of the beast, literally. Uh, but if you raise your head up and you start to make noise, they'll, they'll reach out for you in many different ways. It's amazing. But, yeah, I became offended by the inconsistency of enforcement of the law. I became offended by the cronyism. I became far more respectful of the Greek ethos, at least the creative Greek, the half of Greeks that were creative, compassionate, charitable people. Um, I saw, and again, I, I had a chance to see it from the inside. I had a chance to see two families very well on the inside, that of my uncle, Costa. Um, and I was surprised. First of all, they changed my life. You know, they were the family maybe I should have had growing up. My mother gave me too much leeway. My father was too dis, uh, dissonant in his own. You know, he was either, he either gave up or he was trying to enforce things the wrong way. This is a long story, long tangent. But the reality was now I had I had good role models. They were very proper in terms of understanding society, how to get ahead. They were very career-oriented, very traditional, uh, yet um, progressive in terms of pursuing opportunities. A conservative family, you know, a right-wing party, conservative values, traditional values, had built a house – you know, a three-story house on hard work. Um, everything, I mean, that was that one year that I lived with them and then the influence of them as my family um, during my entire life in Greece. Even though during the later years I didn't see them that much, they had already contributed to who I was. So I always consider them sisters, the three girls. It's kind of funny. I've had many surrogate parents. It's interesting. And yes, We don't get to pick yeah. them, right? No, but we don't get to pick we them. We could bump into was, better ones later. It was, it was yeah. amazing. And um, – the things I did with my uncle, I mean, they, they were building, they were still building the upper floors. And I was carrying piles of bricks upstairs. He put me to physical work. And he taught me little silly things. It's like, walk on your flat feet. Don't walk up the stairs on your tiptoes. Little things that remain today. You know, because I would exert myself and do things later on. He toughened me up. I was a soft, lazy kid. And in a matter of just a couple of years, he toughened me up and made me who I needed to be. It was fantastic. Soft like butter, left like cold steel. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it was fantastic. <laughs> it was amazing. And then just the things I learned. And, you know, and I, I began to really accumulate skills. I learned how to iron shirts better than anyone I know because my aunt was a um, seamstress. She used to, you know, she had a side job too, build a house. She was um, a dressmaker and other things. And she would... You know, shorten my clothes and take them in this, that, the other. So I learned, I learned a lot about that too. Don't ask the things I've learned. It's amazing. <laughs> but I learned how to iron a shirt as a bachelor, like a demon. No one could iron a shirt like me. The proper way to iron a shirt. 
You know where to begin and where to end. What's what's first and what's last, um, there's an order to it. It's amazing. I learned how to use and overuse spray starch. I peeled spray starch off my shirt once. I put someone's on. Oh, yeah. I starched and starched, and I picked it up, and the, <laughs> and the starch literally peeled off and fell off the shirt. It was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it's amazing what you uh, what you remember and what you take pride in over the course of time. So anyway, yeah, that was the duality. I learned to despise government as I knew it to be in the raw sense, especially as the Greek government exposed itself under the socialists post-81. And I admired the free spirit and um, just the, the compassion and intrinsic morality of the Greek and the intrinsic philosophy of the Greek, the philosophical predisposition of Greeks. And I say on occasion, I remind people that, you know, Americans may have psychology or psychiatry. Greeks have philosophy. Yeah. Uh, and that, and I've, I've found refuge in my philosophy many times during many difficult moments, and it's kept me out of the analyst's chair. Um, so, you know, hey, so far so good. Yeah, Aristotle's gone a long way for me. I'll say that. Uh, I read it later as an adult, though. I kind of wish I'd read it younger, but public school kid, you know, this is back before the internet, by the way. So <laughs> there yeah, wasn't exactly. any Aristotle in the library. Right, yeah, yeah, I spent a lot of time at the public library, and uh, not all of them are that great. Although I appreciate all of them. I'm not talking crap about them because thank God there were libraries. Exactly. So I'm happy for them. But yeah. <laughs> now they've got the internet. Like, what's he talking about? You know, like, yeah, it used to be like that. Yeah. Use the old word. What is that? What's the word? Yeah. What are, you, what are you talking about? Yeah. You had to go get a book and you had to check it out. You had to have access to it to actually be able to read it. So I got it in later in life. I wish I would have had it like sixth, seventh grade. I think things might have gone a little bit different for me, but yeah. oh well. It Timing is, what it is, is everything. Huh? I, I read it when I read it. I got it when I got it, right? So so you're doing the college thing. You got side jobs you're doing on the side and this gray economy. You you know, cronyism, who you know versus how good you are at something, right? You're loyal. You're part of the family. You're part of the tribe, right? Kind of like a uh, a yep. tribalism. Yep. Obviously, at some point, oh, and then you have this political chaos, like real political fighting, not just calling and getting somebody fired from a job or getting hurt, but more like, yeah, you might actually physically get beat up. Well, you might be withheld. You might yeah. not get a job. You're economic, like it fully, like, so you're, you're doing this while this is going on. Yeah. Well, and let me clarify though, again, there, there's a serious contradiction here as well, because except for the bubble of political violence that really erupted around elections and the occasional tremendously destructive um, riot in the city of Athens, uh, you know, the Molotovs and the breaking windows and the terrorism. We had terrorism as well. We had, um, we had terrorists blow up a bar full of American mm. armed forces. You know, we had a box full of grenades thrown into a, Hotel pool full of Brits. Anarchists, nationalists, uh, communists. Actually, November 17, a terrorist group, and uh, Red October. Yeah, that's and Some right. other words. I mean, just we had, we had terrorism. But that aside, Greece, populated with the Greeks, unlike now with all the foreigners, it was tremendously safe. You could fall asleep on a park bench. And the level of violence even today you see on the part of the Greeks – 
with all of this oppression, you know, oppressive economic measures over the last few years, any other country, parliament would have been burned down by now. The Greeks are very kind people and not violence-prone the way other uh, ethnicities tend to be, other cultures tend to be. So even here there's a contradiction because in spite of the violence that I willingly participated in, I didn't have to be part of the political scene necessarily, but I did. I was used to the violence from the U.S., for better or worse. Um, but aside from that, I felt tremendously safe. In fact, there really no, were, were no guns. and I, I, I wasn't really afraid of anything but a gun from the States. I felt tremendously safe and liberated in Greece. I could actually calm down now, you know, because I had put myself into stupid situations, you know, in Detroit. Again, that was, to a great extent, voluntary. Not necessarily the culture then, even in high school, was very um, adversarial. There was a lot of violence and what people call bullying now and gang-related activity in high school here reflecting that kind of caused you to choose where you're going to be the prey or the predator. So you had to toughen up. And that's, I think, why I embraced a lot of that in high school. It was a survival mechanism after being... Yeah, there was no middle ground. There was no middle yeah. ground back then. You had no. to pick a side. Yeah, and I... As with most things, I swing the pendulum to the extreme if I'm going to do it. If I'm going to yeah, do I went to a couple in. pretty shitty schools. I have, yeah. Fortunately, I was a big kid, but man, if I'd been born small, it would have been a whole different story at a few of those schools. Well, welcome yeah. to my world. Imagine how crazy you have to be man. to survive. Yeah, you would have to be. Yeah, and, it, it, and I survived, so do the math. <laughs> <laughs> it's better than the alternative, too, yes, right? Exactly. Yes. Uh, indeed, better than the alternative. Yep. But yeah, and that's the duality. It was an ongoing contradiction. I was in paradise, in a sense. And it was because, now, staying to my school days, you know, before my later days as a, you know, as a city banker, um, here we had this tight-knit community of classmates. We had no dorms. We had no fraternities. But we had some great parties. We'd rent a villa here or there, uh, or rent a hall, and we'd be going to these beautiful coffee shops after school. We, we had this – there was a coffee shop next to the school in an adjacent hotel with waiters and linen, and we'd have our coffee before and after school or our um, strawberry ice, one of my favorites. We're just living the dream, I'm telling yeah, you. Very what. bohemian. Yeah, oh, you yeah, can kind of do that. And, oh, I, I can't even express – how it was like a fairy tale in comparison to some of the silliness I see here. They say, well, do you miss this? Do you miss that? No, I don't. The only thing I miss maybe is the reunions because there's not a chance that we'll ever get everyone accumulated mm. from all around the world for a reunion. So it's the one difficult. thing we don't yeah. have, yeah. we've never had, is the reunions. And uh, you know, Nothing lasts forever. You can't live in the past, I guess. But no, I, I do miss it sometimes. If you're only from America, it's hard to imagine a, you know, thousands of year old culture. And instead of wood and brick, you have marble and stone everywhere. And you're kind of like living in the shell of ancient civilizations where even coffee shops are amazing. Even walkways are amazing. It's not McDonald's everywhere you go. It's actually like art and skull. It's very straight. On the Mediterranean, particularly where I grew up, beautiful, dark-skinned women, dark, like the food, everything. It's it's hard to describe to people who haven't experienced it, which is why you should travel, folks. Get out there. You might make different decisions here, too, when you get out and see what's going on. But 
it'll change. Your I never made it to Greece, but I have some idea what yeah. you're talking about. Cause even now when I drive around, sometimes I get annoyed, you know, it's just, it's just not the same, you know, I know we're a young country. That's okay. But I do miss that part, you know, all the marble, all the stone, all the culture, and they've had thousands of years to accumulate it too. Yeah. And we only get to see what's really left over and what wasn't stolen or destroyed. I can only imagine what it was like back in the day too, you know, back in the day, a little air quotes right there, but still it would be cool to see it in its prime. And now you're right. There's just like little businesses and like mundane businesses and these amazing like marble. And it's just like, wow, this is like the nicest freaking coffee shop I've ever been in. Yeah. And it's like 50 cents for a coffee. That's what it was about. And a great coffee and linen. Yeah. Somebody present. It's a whole different thing. It's a whole different thing. That's what I call it. Bohemian. You should go try it. Go on vacation folks. There's still some of it left. Go, go check it out. Exactly. Yeah. There is. Uh, I miss it. I'm out of here. I'm going to grab a flight. Now. <laughs> <laughs> I miss it too. Sometimes to drive around, especially some places in Detroit where they just decide to put electrical lines everywhere. And you're like, yeah, this is this. The, the Greeks and the Romans would not have done this. I'm certain. <laughs> Yeah. They, would, well, they would have done, they would have figured out a prettier way to do this. And, yeah, and that's the funny thing. That's not necessarily true. You think they would have. You think a lot of things. My 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 idealist self believed a lot of things early on. For instance, I believed as a child that the ancient Greeks were straight up morons. Because who in the right mind I would you know see the Greek tragedies and comedies and say, adults don't act like this. Adults never act so self destructive and irrational. And then I grew up and realized that the yes, Greeks were do. spot on. Yep. But um, I also realized that people in survival mode don't appreciate what they have. And the Greeks really didn't appreciate what they have. And you know what? If they needed a light up in that corner and there was a plug down in that corner and you've got a stone wall covered with you know, lime, they're going to take little anchors and nail them into the wall. You're going to see a wire on the outside of the wall. They're not preoccupied with decor and it's life's about balance then one of the one of the you know recurring themes for me these days is balance and it comes from that because i've seen the extremes i've seen the extremes of preoccupation my mother's ocd with what, how something looked and this that the other and the plastic on the couches and this that the other and then the greek sometimes unbridled practicality were the point where you're you're putting scars on everything around you What's wrong with you people? You yeah, know, stop, I mean, you don't, know, don't drill in that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, there is, you know, you know that happened balance. in Italy too. Yeah. You'd walk around there, just be ruins everywhere. And like, aren't they protecting these? Like, no, we got ruins everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Everywhere, right? Nothing, they can't even put in a subway system yeah. because you keep running into old ruins and they got to stop. And it's like actually a problem. Yeah. We got too much cool old shit everywhere. What are we going to do? We can't build anything new. Yeah, we don't have that problem. So I learned what immersion <laughs> was in Greece too. I learned because I was there and I realized that everything around me was marble. The curbs were made of marble. The curbs on the side of the road. The worst sidewalks of all had like slabs of marble that were like slip and slides. Mm. And they got wet. It was great fun to walk on. Um, the cheapest sinks were marble. The most expensive floors were wood. In the States, it's the opposite. Yeah. The most expensive floors are marble. The cheapest floors were wood at the time. Now the cheapest floors are plastic, whatever. Yeah. Um, oil. Our cheapest floors are oil. oil. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I realized that a merchant is, in its most basic form, someone who takes something from where it's plentiful and takes it to somewhere where it's in greater demand, where it's scarce. And that metaphorically applies to all merchants, if you think about it. So I learned a lesson there too. 
Like value is not absolute. Value is relative. So again, my becoming an entrepreneur, uh, I think, was affected a great deal by the contrast in approach to life and interaction and commerce, uh, what people value, what people don't value, um, a, a great deal, a great deal. Plus the greater degree of formality, the Greeks being merchants, um, having the largest, largest merchant marine fleet as well, um, both of those components caused the Greeks to have a very evolved sense of how to engage in commerce, how to transact, how to negotiate. And if you negotiated willy-nilly like people do here, if you didn't follow the protocol and if you were not serious or irresponsible, they'd smack you down. Immediately you would fail because they knew you weren't a real player. So you began to understand the formality of negotiating. There's a responsibility in how you negotiate. Theoretical negotiations are a taboo. You don't make someone an offer unless you're going to follow up on it. I mean, there's some stuff you just never do, and I see Americans do it all the time. Yeah. Very naive Flip things. it, you know. Yes, very naive things. So I learned the discipline of interaction, the responsibility and interaction between people. Because when you interact, you transact. And those two are commingled. Interaction and transactions are commingled. You can't divorce commerce from daily interaction. They're, they're, they're part of the same flow of life. So many, many lessons. And I don't think, I think I was isolated from the reality of how life really works here because we had already had layers of fabrication upon layers of fabrication. And I just wasn't astute enough to see it then. When my eyes were open, when I ultimately returned to the U.S., then I would see it all. I was wearing new glasses. It was amazing. That's one of the great, I am, so grateful. It was really hard being a military brat. Went to 12 different schools. You get beat up at every school. You know, like there's that hierarchy thing, you know, you got to learn a new language. You got to learn a new culture, all that, all that kind of jazz. It just, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> at the same time I got to see the rest of the world and that forever molded me. In fact, a lot of my romantic ideas died a terrible, nasty death too, which needed to happen. It was good. You know, you have one idea of what it is in your head, you know, and then you, it meets reality and you have a choice, you know, and for a couple of years I fought it. And, you know, the first couple of years in England, I'm like, well, I don't know, man, I don't, I'm just young. What do I know? You know, but by the time I got to Italy, I was like 14, 15. I'm like, I don't know what I don't know, but at the same time, this is not working, obviously. And seeing the differences between the two were very stark. Um, it took me a while to actually put it all together. I'm a little embarrassed to say. I guess I didn't have to, too much not to worry about here, right? I just, yeah. I wasn't forced to put it together until I became an entrepreneur. And that's where the last 10% of my really, you know, not really well thought through ideas fell apart because. Yeah, when you put money behind it, you find out really quick what works and what doesn't. It's a very fast way to realize, wait a second. No, this was stupid. Why did I ever think this? Well, look at the results, Jeremy. You can just pay attention to that. So it wasn't quite as stark as yours, uh, probably because also I had more interaction with the military when I was there. You know, It might have been a little different if I only had native interaction. So would have been interesting to see how that would have turned out. Yeah, and you know, I've seen, I had seen, I, I, it was, it was um, noteworthy for me at the time. I looked around me and saw others that one might have considered similar to myself. Um, foreign Greeks, now in Greece, 
And they fell in with crowds. You know, there were there were hippie style crowds and punk rock style crowds and things of that variety. Greece was not an alternate reality. I mean, they listened to um, a lot of foreign music. Though I, I really enjoyed the Euro trash. I got away from you know, I I didn't have to live with eighties disco. <laughs> I don't think it's ever um, left. Yeah. It's, I don't know what it is about Europeans and disco, yeah. especially Italians, by the way. Oh, yeah, well. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> disco. And no, Michael Jackson. No, yeah. I enjoyed the disco when I wanted to hear the disco, but there was enough diversity in the music that it was it was a good time. Um, plus, the dance clubs in Greece were phenomenal. And the islands, well, you know, we won't get into that because, you know. Sense. I've never been to the island stone, and I'm married now, so don't ruin it for me. <laughs> well, yeah, we won't go there. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, not everyone took advantage of the opportunity as I did. I think my own my own view of that world. I allowed for that experience, that transformation. Thank God. Remember the demoralized state I entered the country with? I think that was that was fortunate because I've seen others that were simply the same thing that would have been here. Though you know what? If you're gonna be a punk rocker, I realize it's more fun in Greece because a beautiful villa, beautiful aristocratic villa back then in the 80s was a, a punk club. Mm. It was amazing to see these, you know, this tall, beautiful structure, stone structure covered with graffiti and black lights coming out of it <laughs> and hearing, you know, and seeing all these <laughs> punk rockers going out of it. Now it's a pizza hut, actually, and it's a luxury pizza hut, you know, like the Taco Bell in uh, Demolition Man? Yeah. Fancy schmancy well, Taco Bell. It's almost as fancy schmancy as not quite, but almost it's not like here. It's considered a higher end kind of, ooh, you know, pinky out kind of pizza experience. And the prices are commensurate. You know, you can pay like $3 for a uh, Coke, three euro actually, for a can of Coke. So, yeah. So I think of, when I think of Greek Pizza Hut, it's better than here too, though. Um, I'm not surprised. But I, think about, I think about the Taco Bell on Demolition Man. That, that was my first. That's hilarious. And you got in a Wesley Snipes movie reference. I don't. We're old enough. I remember the Demolition Man. I remember yeah, watching yeah. that because the, ta- the Taco Bell, the Taco Bell is the only restaurant left. I all think fancy about that movie schmancy. All the time. Yeah. I think about it almost daily because my wife Penny, you know, my my dear from back in the day, you know, one of the things she brought over with her is her her, her uncanny ability to destroy American expressions like Sandra Bullock did in the movie. Mm. So, you know how she was yep. trashing all those? Well, Penny does it <laughs> at least a few times a week, if not daily. Well, English is her second language, right? Yeah, she's real Greek, great. not born. But in she America. studied. She, she graduated American University. So she's she knows English well, but still she destroys the expressions. It's beautiful to listen to. It really is. So, I love that. It's always funny. Me too. It is. It's great. I did the same thing when I was in Italy. I'm not going to say some of the things here because none of it would make sense and most of it was filthy. I was a teenager, <laughs> I'll point out. But yeah, none of it made any sense and I ruined it all the time and it was hilarious. People loved it. <laughs> they saw I was trying. I think that's the important part well, too. Well, important. Yeah. Trying is important. That's exactly right. And there's more to culture than just how you – or a language and how you put the words together too. That was my first idea. I'm like, wait a second. It's a whole different way of thinking about something, too. It's not just a language. Really kind of screwed me up for a while. It took me a while to get around that, actually. Well, I in, I enjoyed especially because one of the things I came to love very much is language. And I think my mastery of language in general had a lot to do with my analysis and understanding of the origins of words. And um, these expressions and slang that come about 
I find them intriguing. I always have. Um, and to see, if you don't know the pedigree of an expression, it's easier to destroy it. And I think that's why, why Penny does this, because she doesn't understand what it's code for. It's no code taboo. for something that came yeah. before and what came before that. And having lived through it, having seen these expressions evolve over time, uh, it's, you know what? I used the expression the other day. Give me the Reader's Digest version on a young'un. They didn't know what you're talking about, did no. they? No. Yeah. Like, oh, my goodness. Are you serious? Language yeah. changes. And I do that intentionally, though, to yeah. see. I mean, people, well, you know, you're dating yourself. I'm doing it intentionally. Um, like, occasionally, I'll still do it. I realized years ago that it wasn't terribly effective. But they'll say regular decaf. And my response would be ethyl <laughs> or high test. <laughs> you know, both terms for premium gasoline back in the day, right? And once upon a time, people knew you meant the strong stuff, the yep. strong coffee. Well, over the course of the years, leaded or unleaded would be another exactly one. Right. Yeah, over a little the euphemism. Of the years, fewer, yeah. But ethyl, you know, you turn around and say ethyl. <laughs> it's like, well, my name's not ethyl. It's like, oh, that went nowhere. No. Um, Above their head. Yeah. yeah. It's fun to collect those things. I have a little book I write them down in as I read. And they, when they strike me as funny, and uh, to be a podcast for another day, there's some I want to bring back, you know, like we've lost them. I'm like, I re we really should bring that back. Some of them aren't fit the air, but uh, they're on there. I, I collect those little things because they're kind of like uh, thoughts from the past too, right? Problems specifically related to their time and their place, but I love it and I'd like to bring it back. There's lots of that. All right, let's get this podcast back on track. Otherwise, we could digress down yeah, this no road joke. We'll be, forever. Uh, I could we'll talk be about it forever, which isn't a bad place to be, actually. No, and I do long podcasts too, but and and they're used to me digressing as we go off. But I wanna I wanna pull it back into mm -hmm. the yeah, uh, yeah. entrepreneurial aspect. Indeed. Yeah. So you graduated in Greece. Did you decide? And obviously, have you? When did you marry your wife? Did you marry your wife in Greece? Or oh, no, no, no. Like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll try to skip through the important details. So here's what happened: <laughs> I came back to the U.S. for grad school interviews. I worked a little bit while I was here, and I really took off in my um, my technology track. Took off. I was doing robotics work. You know, the motion control, like the Star Wars cameras they used in the day. Cameras guided by robots through models. Well, I was doing that programming, so I was and I was you know hustling a bit here too, and I was a I was a uh, instructor for Tandy Corp, Tandy Computer Centers, and selling computers for Tandy. And That's doing back in the day, day. Work. They don't even yeah, know what a Tandy is. Tell I people know. what a Tandy is, yeah, so they exactly. say. There's a lot of young kids. Radio, Tandy is the parent brand of Radio Shack, and they had a foray into computers. They were actually quite popular for a while there. But yeah, Radio Shack, Tandy Radio Shack had a computer division that didn't succeed terribly long. They were reabsorbed into the stores. But the early computers were quite popular. They were, this was before the PCs, and Tandy actually came out with their own PC for a while. I was around when it was being introduced, actually. I lost some options money betting on Tandy. Oops. Because of those PCs. Swing and a miss. A it happens. Yeah. What to do? No, only because I was greedy. I learned a lot about being greedy because the options went up and I was holding out. You need to learn, know when to pull out. Mm. I learned a lesson, but I could have I could have made a respectable return, but I got greedy. And they expired because I because it dipped after that. So I ended up losing it all. That was a lesson too. It was worthwhile. The three hundred dollars I lost was no big deal, I guess. 
It was a lot of money back then, but anyway. $300 used to be a lot of money, exactly, too. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, so, and, and in fact, the grad school interviews went well. I, I was actually awarded uh, a two-year scholarship at some university in Florida based on my scores, just my test scores. Now I was interviewing dual track. I was interviewing to pursue a further behavioral science career. I think the GRE was the test for that. But also I was going to um, monetize or weaponize my behavioral science background. So I was interviewing at various grad schools for an MBA. Hmm. And somehow Citibank Middle East Africa Division found out about me and asked me to come back to Greece to interview. Now I still had my place in Greece during this. And I went back, interviewed, make a long story short, I came back here to pack up more of my stuff and go back to Greece. And I was now I was in Greece no longer as a student. Though I did continue with some master's courses while I was there. But I was working there full-time for Citibank and flying all over the Middle East and Africa. Learning a lot about international commerce, now international banking, computing, politics, the politics of work, corporate world, you know, living my own little um, office space a prequel, you know, before it came out. The whole thing, the whole thing was crazy. Salting the fax machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no, I, I didn't say, I meant, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> um, but yes, it was a totally different dynamic. Um, I was still enjoying Greece because the headquarters for the Middle East Africa division was in Athens. So I was able to stay put, but now I was working in downtown Athens every day. Kolonaki Square, a very ritzy part of Athens. Um, and that was bittersweet too, having a commute every day and understanding how much I hate commuting and driving in traffic. So it wasn't nearly as pleasant as my school experience was. And that drove home the realities of commerce and taxation and politics in Greece now that the socialist policies were well established. Honeymoon was over. Oh, Yeah. It's time to get out of there. So when my contract was up, I didn't re-up, decided to move to the States. I had a very, I had a cloud hanging over my head. I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I knew I couldn't be there anymore. And there was some contention uh, over that decision with uh, with Penny, my, still imagine. my fiance at the time. Uh, we kind of aborted getting married there. I came back to the States. I think maybe the future was in jeopardy at the time because I came back by myself to figure out where I was. And I fell back in very quickly with a friend I met during my short stint during the Tandy and grad school interview days. And he had a business here and I fell in with him right away. And that was the next thing that launched me to the next level. And I quickly got on the phone, told Penny I missed her and told her to get her butt over here so we could get married. So we got married that summer. Wasn't hard prying her away from her uh, beautiful country and culture? for father's hand remotely, you know, it's like, well, yeah, I actually do want to marry your daughter after the fall starting Greece where I kind of called it off. I'm just kidding, <laughs> but I'm serious. No, no, no. This time I'm serious. This time, yeah. In spite of, you know, this, uh, yeah, yes, I actually do. <laughs> you sure you want? No, just kidding. <laughs> Any of you ever hear this? No, really. I mean, my life was not complete without her. So uh, she came over, we got married, and a little absence made the, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, hearts grow fonder, you know, a little bit there. Indeed, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Realize what you lost when you left it behind. Yeah. Romantic. I like it. Yeah, yeah no, it was, yeah. it was very romantic. And it it set the mood, too, because the reality was I never truly moved back to the States after that. Uh, it ensured that I would have a home for the rest of my life in two countries and business interests in two countries. 
and would fly back and forth like migrating ducks for the rest of our lives. Uh, and that's indeed been the case. Since that summer, I've never spent, except for one year when we had some medical issues, where we didn't go to Greece for an entire year. Uh, every year we've been to Greece at least once. For been in Greece for at least a month of the year. Never been in the States, except for that one year, 12 months consecutively. Nor That's amazing. I. So you just went yeah. back every year almost. Not only that, I arranged my, my work schedule. My career always allowed for me to be in Greece for, uh, in the early days, six weeks, because plane travel was expensive. I actually worked it out where I could be gone for six weeks, which was, for someone in the infancy of an IT career, was a miracle at the time. How I pulled it off, who knows? But that's another story. You know, you you assert your value, you prove your value, and then you're in a position to negotiate whatever you need to negotiate. Yeah, you start to master some things, and you could yeah. kind of pave your own way to a certain extent at, at a certain point, right? Yes. So you were testing the exactly. All right, let's see how far I could push this. Yeah, it would be nice to have a month in Greece every single year, and. My wife will kill me if I don't, so let's make this work. <laughs> exactly. And the reality is, and that's another fundamental for me, is that there's no absolute in contracting and in negotiations. And again, we, there are moral boundaries. That's always a given in everything I say. But beyond that, the sky's the limit. As long as you try, don't try to modify a deal after the fact. I have a violent reaction <laughs> to people trying to modify a deal after the fact. I'll never do business with you again. That's how far I'll take well, it. I've, I've, yeah. I've had some very, I can't even describe uh, certain drama that has occurred when people have tried to do that. Uh, but that, that aside, anything's possible. You can put anything on the table. Um, obvious signs of abusive posture will cause someone to be lower and lesser in my eyes. I will not. That's a mistake many people make. They'll come in with an absurd uh, position. These things do damage in spite of the fact, well, I said it. You can always reject it. Yeah, but it's not going to leave this negotiation unscathed. You want to come in with that? You're responsible for your posture. You come in like that, you're going to wear that mark. I want to talk about this because yeah. this is extremely relevant because we've been – thank you. I, I, miss, I appreciate people being – uh, patient with me and my interests. I think this is important, but now we'll come right on the head. Let's talk about that. Because yeah. I will say in the real estate world, there are two schools of thought, right? Um, the one school of thought is if they're not insulted, you offer too much, right? And then there's another school of thought where more like what you're, what you're preaching, right? Know your numbers, come in with as much credibility as possible to get the deal done, right? And obviously there's some in between as well. And I'm kind of an interesting position where I'm one of the few real estate agents who's actually done a lot of investor stuff. I've wholesaled, I've flipped, done all sorts of crazy things, right? So I, I have, I kind of have a little bit of both in me, but I, I lean more towards what you just said especially after being a realtor now and seeing how in the real world, how people react to offers like that and getting that real world feedback. So it was interesting that you just came out and said it too. I was like, Oh man, I gotta, I gotta nail this, right? There's some credibility and especially with different cultures, but in general, 
if you don't have credibility in your negotiating process, meaning the whole process, right? Exactly. Absurd to not absurd to valid to invalid. And I literally had this happen with some clients who just, by not doing at all what they said they're going to do, our negotiating position is nil. There's literally nothing I can do. They keep getting upset. I'm like, well, you don't, you keep not doing what you're doing. What, what, what leverage do I have to go back and ask them to do something different when we can't do what we said we were going to do? And now we're trying to, to change it. So that's right there with that credibility. Let's talk more about that. Yes. And you're learning that and you figuring that out because I think that directly applies and would be useful to people listening on the podcast. And then we could entertain ourselves again. <laughs> well, it's interesting. You know, I mentioned earlier about the negotiation um, aspect of having learned the formality of that in Greece. That was intentional too, because that's that's been a central theme to what I do in two levels. Now, keep in mind today, in fact, the last two decades, uh, there's been a great deal of emphasis on solutions, the solutions that I create in the world of payment acceptance. But that's really shorthand for commerce. The payment being the epicenter of a transaction, the transaction conditioned by an agreement of some sort, some kind of representations on both sides. So in order to match that payment to an event and to declare an event successful or fulfilled, uh, you need to understand what the context is, meaning the agreement. Now, in life, there are many ad hoc agreements. There are a number of representations made by one party, a number of representations made by another party, and these accumulate. And people in their lame, you know, in their lame way will try to negate every representation being made by ending their, uh, ending their, their session with, uh, but this is as is. It's like, really? Well, if it's as is, why do you put all this other stuff here? We still do that to this day, yeah, by I the know. way. And it, yeah. it, it's foolish, but you know, this is another pet peeve of mine, seeing this as is. You've made all these representations and then you say as is. Really? What, what, what was that about? But, um, so here, I learned these lessons about commerce, about the accumulation of essentially what becomes a contract through representations. And contracting and negotiating are related. Commerce, contracting, negotiating. This is like the trilogy of commerce. Um, I use them in my own commerce, in my own interaction, in my business life, in my entrepreneurial life. But I also design systems to facilitate this commerce and to regulate it to a certain extent, to impose best practices, to moderate these flows. So I, for two reasons, uh, for my two missions, I spend a lot of energy on exactly this subject, on the subject of, among other things, negotiating, you know, one of the big three, right? Um, negotiating, for me, and that's why I appreciate Trump's negotiating ability, because there's a lot of overlap between what I've been exposed to his doctrine more recently, because I wasn't paying a lot of attention to him when he was doing his other things. And he wrote a book about negotiating, never really read it. But a lot of the elements I see in what he does are elements in, like some of the notes I've accumulated for a book that I want to write about, con contentious negotiations one day a book in its infancy. And the reality is everything you do in a negotiation affects the negotiation. Everything you say, every, everything, everything, everything. And people are the masters of their own reaction. 
Uh, no one makes you angry. No one makes you offended. You choose to react that way. You choose how you react to a given situation. So if someone is offended by an offer, they choose to be offended. That said, just because they choose to be offended, all parties are in, are, can influence that outcome. Now, what they're trying to do is in, there's a cause and effect. There's a spy versus spy that affects negotiation. I no longer view negotiations as negotiations purely. I actually view the successful component of a negotiation to be the conditioning, the conditioning of an offer. So you're talking about laying groundwork laying the ground. way before. Way before. Okay. That's huge because if you – there's some people who are not manipulative who simply look at a situation the wrong way. They look at something based on a fallacy. I've had a machinist ask me for – a machinist of moderate talent who spent far longer doing something on a piece of machinery, a tool that I wanted to buy, was asking way too much. said, well, that's how much time I have in it, and that's what it's worth. It's like you said two totally different things. That may be how much time you have in it. But what it's worth, that's all. That's questionable at best and a totally useless statement at worst because it's worth has nothing to do with how much time in it. That's what that cost. It's worth maybe less than its cost. Furthermore, given that it's not a standard item and there are very few people around, you know, we'll look around the show right now and depending on how many people are interested in that, it's only worth what it's worth to me. That's all that matters right now. Is what is it worth to me? So thank you for the unproductive exchange. Hmm. So I had to go through that with him. And in another case, you have people asking for something based on an offer price on eBay. It's like you'll see that you'll see an offer price, but did it sell at that? What's the market for that item? There might be three of them out there, and there's only one lunatic in the world who wants it for that price. What are the other two worth now? And the understanding that um, – Values fluctuate. Now, we, we've talked about the dynamic of values going down. Uh, values also go up. How do you explain that? Say, well, it's not worth anymore. This is what it's worth. Values go up. Imagine that this is the one the value is going up on. There's something different about this. So I can assert, I can assert a, I can condition a dynamic that will make a price higher than what others perceive it to be, or lower than what others perceive it to be. The conditioning is all that matters because you might have someone who sincerely has a disparate view of value or someone who's posturing based on their own negotiating style. And they're disingenuous about it, but that's their technique. In one case, you're educating someone. In the other case, you're discrediting their argument. It's a game of chess. But in both cases, the conditioning of the offer is far more significant than the offer itself. That's the reality. And people will, anything you say, you know, sugarcoat or, or uh, poison negotiation with an attitude or sugarcoat or show weakness when they shouldn't. I mean, negotiating is wonderful. It's wonderful. It's the ultimate fencing. Chess really. match, yeah. Fencing yeah, match, chess it match. Is. But unfortunately, you have unprofessional people participate in it. Preaching to the choir. Keep talking, oh, sir. Oh, man. Yeah, now I'm I, really loving it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's a protocol that um, I wish more people would be penalized for. I think that people are far too patient with unprofessional negotiators. Do not offer me something for sale and then say, make offers. 
Don't do it. You initiated the offer. If I see something you have and I want it, then it's fair for you to ask me to make an offer. I initiated the interaction. I essentially put your item up for sale by soliciting it, saying, do you want to sell it to me? But if you put a for sale on it, better damn well have a price. That's one of my rules. It looks like I'm doing something right. Yep. And that, that's, that's key. Now, it's, there's a way to play that game otherwise. I can show something off knowing others will covet it and want it, and I put the ball in their court. Let's see if there's interest out there. I didn't put the for sale on it. So there are, ways, there are subtleties. You, you can nuance that game, but never, ever offer something for sale without a price. That's key. That's unprofessional to do that. Um, there are certain traps people fall into. They try to make people negotiate against themselves, things of this variety. Um, there are, and there are people who will make offers and then say, and if you accept their offer, they'll say, okay, I'll think about it. What the hell was that that just happened? That happens a lot, by what the way. What the hell? I know it happens a lot, and I actually have people ask me to do it. Find out what it'll take for it. It's like, no, I can't do that. I'm so glad you said that. As a realtor, that happens so many times. All right, what would you like to offer? Why don't you call and see what they'll take for it? I'm like, no, that's not how it works. Oh, no. They put out a price. Right. We went and looked at it. You have a number that works for you and mine. Right. Let's put our best foot forward for you, even if it's not good for them. And let's start it that way because that'll be a much faster way. Because if somebody calls me on the phone, this is what I say, right? Hey, I was just calling to see what your seller would accept before I bothered to write an offer. I have my standard response. Uh, I don't negotiate offers until I have a written offer that I've verified in front of me. That's my standard response. I didn't start with that. But that's where you end up real fast when you realize yeah. they never write the offer. They back out. They try and reduce the price after it's some sort of gamesmanship. Yeah. They're either not serious, unprofessional, or they're trying to f circle for weakness, do an inspection, come back at a lower price. Like it just now, my is like, well, once I have the offer in front of me, I'll let you know. And I'll submit it to my seller and then we can start there. What you don't know? Oh, you think my seller hired me so I could just tell you what price they would take? I don't even ask them. We price the house based on what we think it will sell for. That's that's what we do. And if we get an offer, then I'll ask him because we have an offer. But you calling me on the phone is not an offer. I have no proof of funds. I have no purchase and sale agreement. I don't know anything about you. How about you go write it up? Well, it'd be a waste of my time. Like you're wasting my time right now, you yeah, mean? like that. I literally have that conversation. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Stop well, wasting my time. Well, here's the reality. The reality is it goes beyond that. You know, the timing is everything. Uh Timing is everything because this moron who's wasting time on the phone, he might have caught you in an idle moment and squandered it. You might have three offers the next day that changes the landscape. So what he doesn't realize is it may be theoretical for him as well. He may get a number, but you know what? You don't have to honor that number. He asks you verbally, say, maybe, you know, my, I think right now, let's say, you know, it's listed for 500,000. I think right now, my buyer will take 400. He's all smiles. But you know what? By the time your offer's here, I think it's going to be 500 again. So, you know, <laughs> I like digging with people like that. You know, time's a wasting. Yep. And you're wasting it. You know, your question's theoretical. My answer's theoretical too. As binding as your inquiry is, that's how binding my counter is. It's all a waste of time. 
And it's, you know, I've, I've actually, I've had to uh, constrain people to written offers on vehicles to avoid that. Too easy it's to give crazy. a verbal. Yeah. It, well, not only that, it, you've got all these tire kickers calling with theoreticals. Well, I'll ask the wife and this, that, the other. I mean, just people are irresponsible about in, their interaction. But you see that these same people, and this is the reality, people who are irresponsible in their professional interaction just tend to be irresponsible. Does it sound like I'm judging? Well, yeah. Well, there's no way to talk about a group of people without at some way characterizing that group and removing from the individual. So I'm okay with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> bad behavior is bad behavior. I'm not isolating anyone, but yeah, that's a bad negotiating technique. Yeah, just- if you do it with me, you're starting from a position of weakness. I know what you don't know immediately. So if I figure out your buyer really wants it, I'm going to exploit the hell out of you because you just showed me all your cards. Exactly. You show me how weak and pathetic you are. And if you actually have a solid buyer and we're working with you, I can dominate you through the entire process and close. Yeah, I do that. That's probably like 60% of my business. They don't know what they're doing. They open in some way that reveals their weakness. I figure out a way to exploit it for my seller's benefit who hired me and they think they're a genius and I hope they don't change it to that extent. So, and the rest of the time they're just wasting your time. <laughs> uh, clearly. And that, yeah. and that, that is the thing. And that's where people don't understand. And that's why I, uh, I put such an emphasis on knowing what you don't know because these people have no clue what they don't know. And it's that, that the, Ugly sisters of arrogance and ignorance, because ignorance begets arrogance, and vice versa. Arrogance begets ignorance, the perpetuation of ignorance, because it puts a cap on your brain and doesn't let anything else in. So arrogant people don't learn, and arrogant people tend to be ignorant, and the the arrogance prevents the ignorance from being rectified with a new understanding, with any growth. So there you have it, the zombies of our world. Yeah. The negotiating um, thing really pisses me off. That's why I had to oh jump man, on it. Like, no, no, no. It's it's critical. I mean, it's yeah. key. It's key. And I've had, I've had some very contentious negotiation with governments, and they think because they're big shots, they can push you around, and that was a mistake, <laughs> because they didn't understand the jujitsu of value. They didn't understand. They didn't understand many things, um, but I think the most important was that um, when you have a foundation of principle. And you have a well-qualified, well-conditioned agreement and attempt to change it after the fact will yield no results, will only yield resentment. And that's what happened here. Um, contracting is playing war games. You need to be able to predict the future, a possible future, every alternate future, um, predict where things might go south. And there's a whole breed out there that live on cultivating a misunderstanding. They want to prevent the clarification yes. of certain things. They want to leave a void to allow for misunderstanding later on that they can exploit. And that's one of the tools people use to try to negotiate after the fact. So I tend to be very tedious in my detail in qualifying an agreement. And they say, tedious, and we don't need to do that. Oh, yeah, I want to bet. We do need to do that. Otherwise, you leave a void for misunderstanding, which is a very bad practice. Well, and a lot of players will do that, to your point, uh, purposely. Yes. 
as part of the negotiation just to screw you later. Yeah. Yep. And you think you have a deal and then your choice is get screwed or get screwed less. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, wait a second. I need to avoid this. Mm-hmm. It's funny you do that because I took a policy. I just don't deal with governments. And you went kind of the like because uh, I, I was like, man, what, do I want to go ahead there with them? Now, I will say I will qualify that that most of my government experience has been the city of Detroit. So I think that – bounds it pretty clearly for people listening that this is this is an incredibly myopic view of my own that uh i gave up trying to cooperate with the city of detroit because they just don't want to cooperate there's no cooperation there so unless it, although it seems like you can buy it you can buy a level of cooperation oh, yeah. if you're like dan gilbert is rampant. Yeah. yeah banana republic but you can't r- reason no. any cooperation even if it's in their best interests so my policy has been Avoid them at all costs, except when, when you can't, you know, and, yeah. and then as little as possible for as short a duration as possible. So. Well, we're closer on that than you know, because when I say government, I meant foreign governments. Mm. I actually put a moratorium on working with the U.S. government or any U.S. government entities uh, to the extent that if they have us fill out any of this company composition forms, if they, if they send a bid my way, and it also has the requirement to fill out a uh, demographic, you know, quotas. Say, how many yeah. minorities, how many women, this, that, the other. I won't quote. Yeah. Principles, this, right? It, well, not only that, this is principle, yes, because um, in the heyday of that, when there were a lot of, because we were DOE uh, registered, Department of Education, and they wanted some product directly instead of through our clients, um, I was compliant. I'm colorblind, I hire on the merits. And my composition, both of females and minorities, was through the roof. It turned out that wasn't the point. The point was I won't play that game. Yeah. I will not stoop to that level for the business. It's not going to happen. So, But foreign governments didn't have that nonsense. But still, the people try to push you around. And if you've conditioned your agreements well, you will survive that. Yeah, I bet – that's probably the main move governments have is like this bully or I would say like rich corporations too, right? They'll try to bully you or starve you and Top that's a form down. of bullying. Yeah, yep. exactly. Yep. yep. Try and try and intimidate you in one way or another to accepting whatever their proposal is, right? And yeah, exactly. And they will I mean the starvation thing is a pretty big thing. You know, the, the funny, the one immovable object um, when you enter a negotiation, uh, the the one, the singular, um, objective element is time. How much time do each of the party ha- parties have? Because in my various pursuits, I've come to understand that uh, that we have to paraphrase the, the, um, the expression. We have to correct it. He who, has, he who cares least wins, they say. That's not totally true. It's who has the greatest time wins. Yeah. That's the reality uh, because I can care more, but I'll, I'll wait indefinitely. I, I'll, I'll wait for you to realize that you're hungry and need to sell. You know, and people who buy with the, uh, with the unrealistic expectation that they're going to be able to flip, that all, the miracles will line up. Mm. The stars will align. No. The unicorn will fart rainbows and they'll turn this thing around and have all kinds of money in their pocket. Going into something, putting that kind of unrealistic pressure on yourself will put you in a situation where you are 
the weak party in a negotiation. And it's perfectly ethical for an another party to take advantage of that relative value. It's of greater value to you to sell than it is to them to buy. And that's what commerce is made of. That's what competition is made of. And these are the merits of the free economy. I see a lot of first-time investors do this. They put an artificial time limit on when they have to get their first deal. And then they're struggling figuring out what a deal is. And then they get impatient and say, well, I just need to do a deal, right? And then they become a victim of that, right? Where they have this artificial imposed time limit and then they make a bad decision. I raised my hand. I've been guilty of that once. That's one of the hard things I had to learn as a young man is I had no patience whatsoever. Why isn't everything done now? It's actually something I've really had to work on, but that happens a lot in the new investor department right there where they think they only have a certain amount of time and imposing that limit on themselves forces them into a bad position thinking, you know, you've got however long you're going to live. Relax, man. You know, like that happens a lot, a lot. A lot of realtors quit too because it takes time. It's a highly competitive industry built in relationships over years and they'll put in a year or two and judge themselves on that first year or two when realize you're not even really beginning to know what you need to know until at least a couple of years, probably. Right. And then they'll say, well, I didn't make it in time. Right. Nope. That's, that's just, you just negotiate yourself out of a career because your time constraint wasn't realistic to that too. So I think there's several good, and that's just off the top of my head. I probably could think some more, but tying it, tying it back into the podcast listener. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's funny because, um, indeed, what was it? Unrealistic expectations or not enough patience? What was it? There's so many possibilities. But the other thing is, again, we talked about two contradictory truths, maybe opening our eyes to reality. The two contradictory expressions that I always wear are uh, good things come to those who wait. And alternatively, he who hesitates is lost. Yeah. Reconcile those two. Yeah, you don't have forever either, right? Yeah. And I've seen situations where both apply. In fact, one of my pet peeves with the Shark Tank thing, for those who watch it, I watch it periodically for amusement and occasionally it gives me an idea, but mostly it's a rehash. But one of the things I've learned, one of the bad habits these uh, self-absorbed angels have is they will say, Make a decision right now. I don't like indecisive people. It's like, you moron. First of all, one's ability to express quickly a decision has nothing to do with ambivalence or indecision. Sometimes good decisions mature. So expecting me to make a quick decision has nothing to do with my being indecisive. Dumbass. I like to punctuate. I like to be on the show just so I could bitch slap. Did I just say bitch slap? <laughs> you can say it yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. I said it anyway. Um, but yes, I, I'm offended by commingling those principles. Indecision and a quick decision have nothing to do with each other. There are times I've had some really big deals where I've had to make lightning fast decisions based on years of intuition and confidence, and they were real money makers. And I was literally seconds away from losing deals. And I, I laid it down based on nothing scientific, just knowing what I know, and it worked out very well. There are times when you have to do that. But why constrain yourself when there's no time pressure? Because time reveals certain realities. 
It's like yeast causing the bread to rise. Mm. Really, the more data you have going into something, and the snapshot in time, as we talked about before the podcast, we talked about the snapshot of knowledge, and you talked about going back in history um, and how it changes perspective. Well, you actually touched on a point central to my thinking as well, and that is patterns don't lie. Points across time don't lie. You establish patterns, and you, there's a more richness of information over time. So if you can collect data, you know, if, I, if something causes interest in me today, I'll see how much historical information I can get about it. Or I'll sit and wait and watch and see if there's something else that will develop. And I like to see that in deals. I like to see how attitudes develop in potential business partners. Uh, I like to see, I want more stimulus. I want more data points. I want more. And you can't get more by turning your head. Sometimes you have to just wait and let time bring you more. Uh, so there's, unless there, cause there's a conflicting principle where there is a known urgency, patience is definitely a virtue. But be warned. Every moment, I, I coined a term to explain a metaphysical dilemma years ago, and I call it the time-choice continuum. Each moment in time represents a choice on our part. Inaction is a choice. There is no such thing as inaction, per se. Inaction is an active choice. Yes. But there are times when no action is the proper action. Don't feel compelled to act, to move. Uh, as the uh, the famous um, Senjun, whatever his name is, says in The Art of War, never interrupt your enemy while he's making a mistake. Absolutely. I do that all kind the time in negotiating. Yeah. And that's actually one of the things my, my mother got right. She didn't uh, get a lot right, but she used to tell me not deciding is deciding too. Indeed. That's like a cruder way of Indeed. saying, but it's a, it's same, a subset similar. Of the same principle. Yeah, similar. It's very much so. So be cognizant of your every choice. Actually, I'm digging this podcast because we have like two storylines going, and the dichotomy between both at the same time is very interesting, right? But they're related. They are. Yeah. It's. Yeah. I just, I didn't intend to lay it out that way, but that's what we're in like two hours now, and I'm liking how it's actually laid out that way they're like wait a second he just said that but now he's saying that we told you from the beginning though like we it was an accident but that's exactly how it's working out now yeah, so yeah. i'm enjoying that sorry for all the negotiating interruptions there but that one's like a, a passion i know people would have lots of questions about that's that part too of negotiating as well see negotiating is everything you do again i meant that quite literally literally everything you do during a negotiation, even a protracted negotiation, affects the negotiation. That's periods of silence, periods of inactivity. Every good morning, every good morning, every handshake, everything you do, every lifted eyebrow, everything you say with sincerity, everything you say with insincerity or little irony because you can't keep yourself from revealing certain disdain. I mean, there's so many <laughs> stupid amateur things you see. If you're going to say it, say it like you mean it. Convince yourself you mean it. It's amazing, amazing, the unprofessional, the insincere behavior of people. Yeah, if you tell me you're going to do something and I don't believe you, I'm going to call you on it. Yes. That's part of negotiating too, right? Or reject you. Or reject you. A lot of times rejection. Yeah. Or if it's a counteroffer, mm -hmm. meh, no, that's not sincere. I don't believe you. 
I'm, I'm going to call you, you know, especially if you did things up front that led me to believe there was weakness in what you're saying, right? A lot of times what I'll do to get additional information is there's a little hot tip for people. Every offer I have come in, I always call the lender and I always ask the same list of questions. And then when I get to the end, I'll ask two open-ended questions. You know, what's it like working for this, uh, working for this borrower? And then I'll, I'll just throw that out there and just see what they say. And you'd be surprised what they, what they say, right? Especially if they know their client really wants the house, they'll go so far the other way. Or I go, is there anything else you need that I can second voice right now? Which is a fancy way of saying, is there anything you don't have that you need and I could help you get it? Whereas you might not have been honest before with me. If I ask that, a lot of people be like, oh yeah, I really do need this. So you go, oh, okay. You, you, there's a piece you're missing or, yeah. you know, so I'll ask those two kind of questions to see about catching them in some sort of trap and seeing what else they're willing to reveal or know that I can use later in the negotiation. And they usually don't even realize I'm doing it. Well, it's the difference between going in the front door that has the, uh, you know, the, the concierge at the door and going in the service entrance, you know, just, Kind of walk in informally and talk to the staff. Yep. You know, you get a very different response. And that's, it's significant how you, and that's as much metaphorical as physical. I mean, the way you approach something uh, interpersonally, or is it uh, more stilted, formal engagement? There, there are many ways to achieve a different dynamic in your interaction. And the response you get, how candid the response is, will vary a great deal. Well, do, so you, you're right. do you have a – I'm just going to throw this out there. If you don't have a story, I'm just going to ask because I know you've done some pretty high stakes and some very larger than normal, at least most of these people that are listening, normal negotiations right, or deals where they thought they had you, but you, you had them and won without mentioning names. I don't want to get you in trouble. Yeah. I just – we like stories. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, We yeah. like stories. So, Oh, yeah. I've got some stories. You got, you got one you feel like you could share? I, I can actually share this. It's, okay. I mean, it's real. Now, I'm a bit of an idealist still. And that might be the reason I'm modestly successful instead of insanely dripping rich because I have boundaries. And that's okay because, parenthetically, I might say that I view the difference well, I view capitalism as distinctly different from being an entrepreneur. Not all entrepreneurs have to be capitalists. And many people don't understand that. So the my entrepreneurial adventure has bought me a great deal of flexibility to set my own standards, set my own schedule, set my own subject matter, and reward me well without a single-minded fixation fixation on the monetary component. The freedom and flexibility and creativity are also rewards. So that's the distinction that I make. So I consider myself far more of an entrepreneur than capitalist. Just not about money. It's not just, just, just about, not about money exclusively. Yeah. Yes. Um, that said, I, I will talk a little bit about my adventure with uh, one of my interactions with the, uh, with the Greek government. We won a, an EU tender uh, an EU-funded public tender for a um, 
and for a consumer email and electronic payment, uh, presentment and payment system. And that was a big adventure. And we, we ended up winning in that bid, and I won't get into how we did that. That's, that's a story unto itself, which is like a fairy tale. It's fantastic. But um, the subject matter, the, the, the client user that would host this system was the Greek post office. Um, the master contractor that we partnered with that provided the whole system, including the hardware and all, all of the other extraneous things, because we provided the commerce component, not the email or the hardware. The integrator of record was the Greek phone company, who was the internet provider as well. They had a large integration division, and they were quasi-private. Still a government entity, but with private money, it was this mixed metaphor that Greece was, uh, you know, they were experimenting with. It was kind of silly. But um, they were playing the classic game. Now, I I provided a, um, a very well-considered proposal. We won. Now, I mean, we did win. There were four bids submitted. We were the commerce services provider for two of them. The word on the street was that in order to win, you had to be Kalipay. How we achieve that's another story. That's one for another day, but it's fantastic. So we were two of the bids, and one of the bids, one of the two, one of our two was selected, so we won that. Well, after the fact, after a very well-conditioned agreement, they came back and tried to give us all kinds of additional work, documentation work and um, project management work and all kinds of ritualistic work, which would have added three bodies, three FTEs to me for the life of the project. And it wasn't well. It's implied. No, it's not implied. It's not implied at all. Well, we're not paying you, and we're going to go back and tell. Uh, we'll tell the post office that uh, you're not performing. And in a little bit of jujitsu, I um, I had conditioned the agreement with a clause that said, the licenses are granted, but we retain ownership of the licenses. The licenses Ooh, are not granted until go. fully paid. And that was a standard. Oh, they also tried to get us to pay. Um, they tried to turn it into an onshore transaction so that we would pay the VAT out of our pocket, out of our share instead of out of their share. But it's like, no, we're selling out of the U.S. And we and I had in-house attorneys at the time and everything. And we found out that there's no VAT for software being sold cross-border. The selling party across, you know, overseas is not responsible for the tax at all. So they failed on that attempt. But on the second attempt to foist all this work on us, uh, they said, well, we're not paying you. And I said, well, we own these licenses, but here's what's going to happen. I'm continuing to deliver like nothing's going on. We haven't stopped delivery to the uh, to the post office at all. You think that because you haven't paid me, I'm not going to deliver so you can go back and get the client to bully us into your terms? It's not going to happen. I'm delivering. I'm delivering to the very end. If you don't pay, they're going to get notice. That their licenses haven't been granted because you haven't paid us money that they've already paid you. Ooh. Guess what? There oh, you go. Oh, man, it was beautiful. Got them. It was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so they thought they were going to use the end client as a weapon against us. I told them if they don't pay us, we're using the end, the end client as a weapon against them. It looks like I'm glad you brought that up because, uh, yeah, they're not going to be very happy with you because they already paid and everything's working on their end. Yes. That's beautiful. And the reality is... I have never used, I've never had to use these tools. 
and this advantage to force an unfair conclusion. Having Holding all the cards, I didn't abuse those cards. I used them to get us back to the center, back to the agreement that we originally agreed to. And when people try to use leverage, leverage they don't have for an unethical purpose, I highly resent that. Well, it's almost like a, like a concealed carry permit kind of situation, exactly. right? You, yes. you had that built into the contract, essentially. Yes. Exactly. And obviously, they didn't read it as finally I would have read it. I don't care how many pages. Before I start any shit like that, I go through and I read. You know, I'm like, nope, we can't do that. Nope, we can't do that. So they didn't even bother to read the agreement or they didn't understand it anyway. I bet it was multiple pages. but Well, they couldn't argue with it is the thing. They couldn't argue with it because the clauses were perfectly reasonable and they would only be offensive if it prevented you from doing something that you haven't declared you wanted to do. Mm. That's the key point, is that even if they were more astute, they, they didn't have any cause to have them removed. What would they do? But they, they didn't even try. I mean, there were some things they tried. Um, I remember, but it's like, no, this is what it is. And this is within the confines of what I agreed to verbally before we got the bid. So there was a pre-agreement in order. This is what's offered and this is what is stated. That's all that's on there. Uh, you can't magically add stuff. And this is the continuity to that. There's no disconnect between my initial offer and a rounded out contract. The memorandum of understanding versus a more formal agreement. So continuity of agreement is important. But things do evolve with additional detail. Um, you need to be, there needs to be continuity, of course, among those things. So, you know, you just protect yourself. And war games are important in that. You need to be able to predict the future. You need to go through it in your mind. It's like chess. I've, I've, in recent years, I've come to find chess offensive only to the extent that there's a total disregard for the pawns. And uh, the concept of the pawn, I think, is an antiquated one that yeah, you absolutely. can discard pieces. Yeah that you can throw fodder on the battlefield for your purpose. So that I find counterproductive. Yeah, to, war of attrition only, basically. Yeah, yeah. to more, to more, to more um, inspired thinking of conflict. But chess, to the extent that you have to predict moves ahead, what will happen, is tremendously productive and is something everyone should pursue. Be realistic about next steps. Be realistic about not what you want to happen, but what could happen. And condition the environment, condition your agreements to inoculate yourself against things that might not happen. And I frequently tell those who I negotiate with across the table, if an agreement is portable, if a sales agreement can be sold or a company that I'm dealing with can be sold to another party, I tell people, and I mean this sincerely, I'm not negotiating with you in mind. I'm assuming the most adversarial, manipulative person, mercenary person on the other side of this agreement because there's no guarantee it's going to be you. This might be sold. Is Whatever high regard I hold you in is moot if this agreement is portable in any way. I need to condition the agreement for the worst-case scenario, and the worst-case scenario is the most disingenuous counterparty, not you, but someone I don't know. Yeah, true. There are a lot of truly malicious people out there, there and this are. is what they do. And this yeah. is how they make a living is doing exactly what you're talking about. Finding the holes, finding the gray areas. This is America. We got a whole 
industry of lawyers doing the exact same thing, and they exist all over the world too. And right? it's asymmetrical warfare. They've got far more resources. You have to condition yourself to avoid having defending these defend these things after the fact. And a little bit of quality thinking and quality work up front can keep everyone in safe territory. It can protect everyone except the those with bad intentions. It doesn't protect them. It you know kind of closes doors for them. But indeed, don't you can't underestimate the importance of a well memorialized agreement. This is near and dear to my heart because my second business failed miserably because I didn't do that. I partnered with a nonprofit. I was going to change the world. We had a prisoner entry program with first time home buyers, and the thing I didn't ever consider, which is terribly naive and i will say i was in my mid-20s when i did this excuse flag right so they was in my mid-20s as if age is an excuse but i'm gonna throw it out there um i never considered what happened if they were corrupt and that was my complete undoing and i'm so glad i learned a lesson i was very bitter for a while I did like six months nine six to nine months just lay on the couch got fat you know Start smoking again, bunch of terrible shit. And then when I finally came out of it, I realized it was my fault. And that if I hadn't done it that way in this, I almost want to say childish way, because it kind of is a little childish, but maybe we'll see, say, uh, uh, you know, through tiptoeing through the tulips, right? Through a sea of roses, whatever you want to say, plan for things going very wrong because they can and they might very well do that, you know, and that. That ruined me. It literally ruined me. I'm still making payments on that stuff to this day. Very expensive mistake. We were printing money too. That's how, you know, and he just killed the golden goose. And it never occurred to me that people would kill golden gooses for the now. And that's a very naive way of thinking. And now I understand there's more of those than there are of the other type, right? Well, now bird in hand to two in the book, like this yeah. whole no, no, no. That's a really bad way to think about it, right? Because this thing can keep doing this and we can right. we can build off that. It just never occurred to me. So my lack of imagination really hindered me, thinking everything was going to go right. Of course nothing's going to go wrong, Christos. It's all going to be oh, great. No, just, you know me, Christos. Yeah, exactly. oh, yeah. You live one house away from me. That's never going to happen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, yeah. No, it happens. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, and it goes beyond that, beyond that as well because, you know, as a methodologist – uh, you know, behavioral scientist and understanding methodologies very well. I look at surveys where they ask people questions and I laugh. I, I have a great deal of skepticism professionally about people's ability to actually express what they would actually do in a real situation. Would you do this and would you like this and would you buy that? And how? No, people don't know themselves. You're asking them a question about what they would do or how they're going to react to this politically or lifestyle, this, that, the other. They don't know themselves. They don't know themselves. It, you're you're counting on their own frivolous view of their own, you know, their own reaction, and it's frivolous in many cases. Now, here's the key point: many people who are destructive and malicious don't even know that they are. They don't know they're evil. They're doing bad things. They're doing destructive things, but they don't do it maliciously. And that's the dangerous dimension because you can have well-meaning people today. And another key principle for me is aligning the interests of others with those of your own, your own interests with others, so that other people are carrying your banner and working because you have limited energy and time. You want to ensure that 
other participants have aligned interests so you can use their energy, their time, their efforts consistently. Uh, an associated principle is not short-circuiting or satisfying the interests of others prematurely because the enthusiasm someone might have today or their predisposition today may change tomorrow. A bill comes up, a circumstance changes, they become short-sighted, they want to kill the goose for a return today. Something happens, uh, a spouse changes their attitude, is lobbying for a counterproductive you know, return earlier. You need to protect people from themselves, and it's unfortunate, and that's not the role of government, because government has an ulterior motive, but the reality is that people are imperfect, and we as collaborators with others, cooperating with others, can protect others from themselves. We must, because in order to protect ourselves, we need to protect ourselves from them, and the only way to do that is protect them from themselves. Yeah. Because people are imperfect. If you only work with perfect people. Yeah, you won't get any business. You won't get anything done. Yeah. You won't, you'll be an island. Every man, the song is wrong. Every man is an island. And then you choose who docks at your island, you know. Um, so the ultimate responsibility is with you. Salvation is individual and personal. There's no such thing as collective salvation. <laughs> or collective guilt, I might Exactly. Add. Yeah. Correct. And there you go. Associate principle. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it all begins with you and assume that those around you are imperfect and you need to condition an arrangement, a scenario, a deal, so that you don't allow the malicious to act, but also don't allow for a counter counterproductive development in the future among the flawed. And there are flawed people who will subconsciously take the shortcut, the low road. They will not keep up the momentum, the enthusiasm. There are just those realities. And it can be done. You can work with imperfect people as have employed hundreds of people over the years. I've, I came to the realization, I came to two realizations. I had a really bad employee and I had to keep adding policies and policies to keep him in line. It's like, wait a minute. Is the absence of formality the problem in my company or is this employee the problem? Employee's the problem. Was asked yeah. I realized there was a big awakening. But the other one was that I understood that there are very few people who are intrinsically good intrinsically and absolutely good and very few people who are intrinsically absolutely bad though there are probably more of those um, most people have a spectrum of behavior and you can cultivate that behavior you have an effect on you can influence the quality of their behavior and the quality of their work you can do that as an employer and you can do that as a business partner or a trading partner as well you can constrain the bad behavior and you can encourage and promote the good behavior. And it's probably a key, an under understood point of cooperating with others is how you influence the behavior and participation of others. And that word influence is important too. Control is overstated. It's overrated. Uh, it's unrealistic. It takes too much energy. Uh, really what we're doing in life and in deals is we're influencing an outcome, being more probably, in, in terms of probability, uh, being a better outcome. We're influencing the probability of an outcome. We can't guarantee, we can't control a successful outcome. But in the course of our numerous activities, we can influence the odds of a better outcome, a more um, rewarding outcome. 
well, there's rules that we've talked about. Influence. Influence is always more effective than control. Well, people don't respond negatively to it either. When you try and control someone, there's only a few responses you're going to get, and none of them are good. Yes, right. Indeed. And if they comply, they're probably only going to comply one time too. So it's a great way to only do business once. And you hit it in the head. Yeah. Control is a fallacy over time. Well, I'll tell you what I do. When I have to take control of a deal to get it done, that's the last time I'm doing a deal with that yes. person. Yeah. That's just the reality. Because I know, like, okay, this is where I'm at. Do I do what's right or force this thing through, get my seller paid and get paid, or do I walk away from it? And the thing, the things you have to do to control the deal are the things that end relationships, yeah. usually, almost always. Yeah. So is it worth ending a relationship to actually control something once influence no longer gets you anywhere? It's funny. I'm in this situation right now, actually. Oh, I'm sorry yeah. to hear that. It happens, man. You know, I do accept more people than I probably should because a good percentage of them you can kind of train in the same way that Joe's trained me and other people have trained me and Steve's trained me, right? They've influenced me. So I think I, I, I cast my net a little wider than the average agent, but it does mean I do have to sometimes clean house or like when it becomes obvious they're not learning, for lack of a better word, or getting with the pitcher, then yeah, sometimes I have to do that. And I, I hate doing it. I'm thinking actually about tightening it up a little bit right now since I'm getting even busier than I was before. I don't know. I hate to, I like to be as inclusive as possible, but at the same time, man, this shit eats up your time and kills your profit. You know, you know? inclusion, I, I think about that concept a great deal. I have a lot of thoughts on it as well. Um, you know, I heat a home in the winter and I look at the gas bill and I, yeah. I've come to realize that when a tent gets too big, it's like having no tent at all. Same thing with inclusion. Um, I like that. Exclusivity is good. Um, it really is because if you don't have a, a common, if you don't have a degree of commonality, culture, creed, quality, you need some common standards, common elements. If you violate that, you've achieved nothing. You've got literally, you know, you've got, you know, you've got a medley on Friday at a diner which is nothing more than the leftovers of Monday through Thursday. It's really all you got. There's no quality in that. So, I like that. When the tent's too big. I like, okay, I'm going to remember that. Well, I fixed it. <laughs> there you go. It was painful, but uh, <laughs> I keep doing it. I, I do that. I've noticed, I don't know if you've ever done it. Maybe not. You've been doing this a lot longer than me. I go through periods where like, I expand. And then I'm like, oh, I went too far. And then you got to like contract a little bit and clean it back up. And then go, okay, time to expand again. Like, I get a little messy. I like that embrace the chaos, too. I was kind of thinking about that with your quote. Like, sometimes when you're growing, it does get messy. And I tend to grow until it gets so damn messy, I can't handle it anymore. And then you got to clean house, pull back a little bit, get everything right, and then grow some more. And I think I've done that like five or six times over the last... 15 years, I think. It seems like a lot to me now that I'm thinking about it, but the pattern just popped in my head when you said that. I'm like, actually, that's kind of what I've done is kind of like, oh, too big, uh, close. There we go. Oh, now we need to get, we got a bigger tent now so we get to, oh, no, no, got to pull it back. It's, that's an interesting analogy. I like that. You know, what you're describing though is not really that counterproductive in reality. You know, there are unrealistic textbook expectations. You know, that you go to business school and you see, 
you talk about this incremental growth and metrics and adding resources, this, this, that, the other. This is not the real world for the, the smaller entrepreneur. Uh, the reality is the inefficiencies of that systematic approach, in quotes, are, are hidden in the scale, in the size and scale, both from a body count and budget perspective of larger corporations. But it's tremendously inefficient. And there's there's a hidden expansion and contraction with the high turnover of employees that just don't make it. Ah. You don't see it. You don't see the tent. You don't see the the bulging, but it happens. The, the same. The, you have the same degree of attrition, and it takes a lot longer for them to contract. And when it happens, it's violent. That's why you see thousands of employees laid yeah. off at once instead of hundreds. It's like, wait a minute. You realize now, as a corporation, with all these metrics, that you have twelve thousand too many now people. That you have twelve thousand too many people. You can figure that out at hundred or a thousand. You had to wait for 12,000 to realize. And that's why government is so bad because by the time they get the data about a market, the illusion of being able to real-time control a free market, by the time they have the data and analyze it, even assuming that all of the intentions are saintly without cronyism and corruption, even assuming that the best intentions are in place, there's no real-time data in order to steer that ship. By the time you realize the ship needs to turn left, it has to turn right. You've accomplished nothing, and corporations are indicative, large corporations are indicative of that. If you have to wait until 12,000 employees to declare a problem, then you know you don't have the reaction time you need. So I wouldn't be too hard on yourself about that. That's the way things grow. I mean, that, that has generally been my, my understanding. The point is you're astute enough to understand when you have to contract. Is this project over? This mission over? I mean, even a fencer knows. Pare, repose. Forward, attack, rest. Back. Forward and back. I mean, as smaller businesses can't be on the offensive ongoing. There are periods of assertive action campaigns, and then there's a pause. There's a rest. There's a reflection, building structure. Same thing with the military. Look at battles. Push forward, wait for the supply line to catch up. Relax, stop. There, it's. I, I think that you're in formula with what you've described, and the fact that it's happened many times means you're you're reactive to your environment. The fact that it's happened more is probably a good thing, as opposed to it having happened fewer times with a greater, more dramatic effect. Well, I definitely, I didn't realize exactly what I was doing, but I've definitely paid a lot more attention over the last four years. I've become more disciplined. And the business I take on. So I think that probably had something to do with it too. Past, past, mis- like, wait a second. Is this going to work? This is not working. How am I going to expand this? This is costing more time and energy than it's worth. I'm tying up the team, doing stuff I should be doing with other, like it all. I have to think I'm not just doing it myself anymore. Right. There's, there's employees, there's people, you know, title, everybody's got, you know, there's a lot of people relying on me to, bring in a certain amount of business every single month. You know, I can't just be so capricious or arbitrary or flippant in my attitude on what to take on and what not to anymore. So that's had a big impact well, that's on my a, that, thinking. That's a sign of, of maturity as well uh, in that you've evolved the triage through which you filter opportunities. That's how I, I look at it, kind of like the triage. Uh, is it compelling? Is it garbage? Or is it something that will wait? Because every opportunity you see doesn't necessarily have the same priority, same timing necessarily. Some opportunities you can put on a shelf. Some opportunities 
looking to keep people busy with filler. I mean, you really need to be desperate to put that kind of junk yeah. in the organization, but people do that. There's some people, well, I've got so many people to keep busy. I'm going to grab this loser opportunity because it's better than people sitting in their hands. Is it really? I don't think so. Yeah. yeah not, so I've done a fair amount of that. That does not, I did it on myself too early in my career. And I did it when I first became a realtor because I didn't have any business. So like some business is better than no business. Yeah, it doesn't work out too great. Yeah. Just, I'm glad I did it and then I learned not to stop doing it. As a learning experience? Yeah, exactly. As a character builder? Yeah. But right. I don't have any right. business. It's the only business I have. Bad business is not a replacement for good business. Yeah, no, in fact, yeah. it f- fills a void that you're supposed to be filling with good business. Yeah. Well, it might actually put you out of business too. Bingo. That's yeah. Too. Yeah. yeah. Even if you survive it though, you've precluded another opportunity. Yeah. The time, yeah. Lost opportunity. I could have been doing something else. Yeah. Yeah. I found that's happened. I'm paying more attention to it now. That's one of my downsides is I tend to prefer action over inaction to the extreme. We said inaction is action. Sometimes I got to pull back and think the shit through a little bit more clearly rather than just taking action after action after action. Like, wait a second. Am I, do I really want to go down this path? Like, we've been doing this now. I have to be more intentional because my default is always action, action, action. I felt, I felt paralyzed as a kid with terrible parents and not being able to take the actions. So my personality is kind of like my default is always action, 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 action. And that's got me into a lot of trouble too, you know, a lot of trouble. Yeah. It's made my life a little bit more difficult in some places. I can understand that. Yes. People are like, Oh, I wish I had your energy. I'm like, well, do you want all this too? I'm like, Ooh, never mind. Careful what you wish for. Maybe not. (laughs) Yeah. It's pros and cons to everything. All right, we've gone way off track on negotiations, but I wanted to do it. That was fun, I think. That went well. Let's let's go back and tie in – where are we at? Two hours and 37 minutes. Let's tie in your entrepreneurial activities that you're working on now as it relates to you now as a concept you brought before the podcast too, the merging dichotomy as a businessman – and as a person, right? An individual. Let's kind of pull all that back together, coming back to the state, starting your own business, what you're working on now in life. Well, it's interesting. I'm in, uh, now it gets good. Um, there is a, there's a philosophical component that lays the foundation for how you've assembled what I'm about to describe. In fact, there's a spiritual component as well. Um, the I've already acknowledged there's no separation between business and personal disposition action. Um, the golden rule is an absolute wall. Beyond that, there's a lot of flexibility in the interaction between humans, and there's a certain reality. Realities vary. So in no particular order, here are some of the fundamentals of what I've built and what contribute to the ongoing success. First of all, don't assume that you are the typical anything. If you've made a market based on your own preferences and tendencies, you might have made a market and it might not last that long. Short story. I know of a young lady who had a fashion boutique. She was very quickly very successful because she intuitively was had her, her, had her 
thumb on the pulse of fashion at that moment. She had never gone to school. She knew nothing about metrics, nothing about supply chains. She found a bunch of sources for clothes she knew she could sell for a lot more. And she was really trendy. Well, she grew older. A few years later, she started to develop her own little quirks, like keeping her stock too long. She, like, like I said, she never went to school. She never understood the discipline of retail merchandising. So she was making some mistakes that she outlasted for a while. But something else happened. She grew older. She got married. She started to change. She didn't realize it. But her thumb was no longer on the pulse Uh of the buying demographic. And she didn't have the professionalism to understand that the world wasn't like her anymore. So one of the things that I learned early on is that I am not typical. If I'm typical with a community, one of my hobbies, that's great. But in terms of my professional aspirations, my entrepreneurial aspirations, I should not use myself as the model for my understanding of the world. And that's where the behavioral sciences came in. And I find to be the most central skill set to what I've done ongoing, both as a businessman and within understanding the interaction between humans, is that using those tools of observation and a discipline in in how I evaluate, I can understand what others do and what the preferences of others are, even though they are dissimilar from my own. I don't say, well, this is what I would do. And when someone in a call says, when we're evaluating something, well, that's not how I would do it. It's like, well, I really don't want to hear how you would do it unless you know you've got like a million damn clones out there, which I hope you don't, by the way. Uh, um, so these are the unprofessional things that we fall into. So central to uh, what I'm doing, central to the success of what I've been doing, both professionally and within the solutions I create, is an understanding of the people who use these solutions. And the solutions, the recurring theme within what I do has been commerce and interaction between humans. So that understanding has been far more important than mastery of the technology. And I'm a technologist, and I understand it intrinsically, what its capabilities are. So I can design a solution that will facilitate non-face-to-face, and in some cases face-to-face interaction between parties, be it two businesses, a business and an individual, two individuals, uh, those lines have been blurred anyway. Um, and it's based on an understanding of the insights of the real-life circumstance of people. Not what they say they'll do, not what they say they want, but what we know they want. We know that they have a shorter attention span than they used to. Absolutely. We know that they're more suspicious than they used to be. We know that they have login fatigue. Don't ask everyone to sign up. Someone comes to you for a product you know they're going to buy once every five years. Why are you trying to get them to register with a login and a password? I'll actually not buy because of that. Yeah, it's like, what? Yeah. I don't need another one. Right. What, for one time? Right, no, for thanks. One time? I didn't need it that bad. Yeah. And you're going to make me sign up to buy this? I am going to walk away. <laughs> and that's a real thing. Login fatigue is a real thing. Do it all the time. Yeah. Still do it. Yeah. I got to log in for this. Why do I have to log in yeah. for this information? Nope. Yes. Gone. Yes. So that that's critical. Um, and knowing the spectrum of good to bad behavior, naive to bad behavior, knowing that there are real threats and perceived threats. 
and knowing what the differences are and knowing that sometimes a perceived threat is as much an obstacle to commerce and interaction as a real threat. There's no difference between a real threat, a perceived threat that's actual, and a perceived threat that's fictitious. doesn't matter. The outcome is the same. Someone walks away. If you look suspicious, someone's going to walk away. If there's a question, someone's going to walk away. An, out, an outstanding question. I'll get to it later. Not even, not even a walk away. Oh, I'll address this later. It never gets addressed. A bill never gets paid. So an understanding of relationships is important, how one cultivates a relationship remotely, uh, that there are such things as relationships between parties that have never met. Uh, momentum is important, understanding what momentum is. Engagement, they call it, but engagement over time is really momentum, follow through. Uh, momentum is easily killed remotely because someone can walk away. It's considered connectionless. I can come back to this later. They never come back. So you need to watch out for missteps, anything that will prevent momentum. And this is the same thing in negotiations as well. How do you keep someone's attention without showing weakness? But you need to do it. There are ways to do it. A hello is sometimes all you need. A good morning is sometimes all you need. Good morning. Nothing else. A message. Good morning. Not even good morning if you come up with anything else, any further thoughts. Good morning. Just good morning. Silence is golden. But there are ways to keep something alive uh, and keep momentum. Prevent loss of momentum. And you certainly don't want to introduce obstacles. And there are many ways to do that as well, to introduce obstacles inadvertently. So these are all of the elements that contribute to what I've built. Now, what have I built? Uh, yeah, we should probably talk about that a little bit. Just so you know to take you seriously. I know, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't, as a rule, I do not use my CV to my resume to condition my arguments because I, the, my reputation shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't affect the merits of my arguments. I prefer to, to present my arguments anonymously and allow them to present the merits intrinsically. Uh, in this case, in terms of my product, it's interesting. I think it's an interesting story. So let me throw a counter punch yes. though mm -hmm. to that. Yes. I'll see what you think about it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I would say yes and no to that. Mm -hmm. I think in the internet age, though, where people can pretend much easier, mm -hmm. your accomplishments or what you have done, not so much as a bragging, but as a, it's more like a credibility factor, kind of like, um, I don't know, safe and secure on a website mm -hmm. or something like yeah. that, which I, I know what you're talking about can also be abused, right? right? But at the same time, I'm very unlikely to listen to somebody who hasn't done it, even if they're right, because I've made that mistake in the past where I've taken advice, which you shouldn't just take advice. You should think about it and go interpret it in your own life. But we all do it, right? Where yeah. you take advice from someone who you shouldn't have been taking advice from because they'd never done it before, right? Okay. Like taking investment advice from most realtors. Like that is just a waste of time. Mm -hmm. They sell houses. They don't make investments yes. because their houses – and they're related doesn't mean you should be taking advice from a realtor, mm -hmm. you know? So that, that was my counterpunch to that. Let's see what you think about that. Well, I view these things. There are two distinct scenarios, I think, and you've touched on a different one than what I was referring to. Okay. Um, when discussing a situation, a political situation, a business scenario, a dynamic a work dynamic, the merits of an approach, an investment approach, this, that, the other. I'm tremendously analytical. 
and I will embody the the elements of the argument within the argument to anyone who will read it. And my intention is to fill a void of misunderstanding or fill a void of blind assertions. I am this person, and this is what I say, period. And they haven't supported it in any way. And I'll feel compelled to blow holes in it by analyzing it. Um, saying, well, I know I'm more experienced than you, and I disagree. That tennis game is useless. No, it's a bad argument. Yes, yeah. I agree. Um, however, um, if I'm paid to give advice, if someone's engaging me to pay to give advice, if I'm going to start giving advice without analyzing it, I want them to know beforehand. I want them to have the confidence in who I am and why I'm giving advice. And if I say duck right now, don't second think why I, in my estimation, real-time estimation of the security that you need to duck right now. All right. Run. My bad. We're on the same yeah. page. I just jumped yeah. in too early. That's all I did. No, no, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I interrupted you too soon. My apologies. No, 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 no. Yeah. Um, but there, there, there are distinct scenarios. But indeed, establishing one of the key elements in successful engagement is establishing yourself as the ultimate authority on the subject. Professionally, that's critical. You want to get that out of the way. Because if someone's going to take you seriously, quickly, with effectiveness, you can't have them ongoing judging the the substance, the merits of what you're saying. There are times when you need to get past the trust. You need to know that I'm the one who tells you what to do right now. If I say turn left right now, turn left. That's it. You need to have that kind of trust in me. And there are situations where it's that important. It's that critical. This is what needs to be done. It's no time for forensics. No time to take a break and analyze this. Right now you need to do this. So, yeah, it's important. What you say is important, but I also prefer not to be the one conveying that message. I prefer others around me. I prefer the community to speak on my behalf. And frequently that's how I get involved in things, is that the community has already recognized my stature and insight into a given area. And that's why I'm invited in to begin with. If I have to be the one to sell sell me as a resource, I'm less inclined to do that these days. There's plenty going on where I don't have to participate at that level. And I prefer that others give their own objective assessment of what I've done. And I prefer to analyze and provide a merit-based argument. Um, I probably haven't had, had to present actual credentials probably in the last 20 years to anyone anyway, because I think by the time I'm done introducing a given subject, I think it's somewhat apparent my level of insight and understanding into it. That's an excellent point. I'm going to interrupt again for all the pretenders out there. I'm going to ask you a question. Mm -hmm. If somebody's pretending to know something they don't know in your business and they open their mouth, are they fooling you at all? Never. 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 It's as stark as day, right? Yes. yes. So this happens all the time at Renegade Detroit Investors. And I'm not saying it in a bad way or calling you out. I'm not mentioning names, but it happens at least 10 times a meeting where, and it's from all the way from beginner to somebody who really shouldn't be, right? Like I always wonder about those people. Like, why are you pretending you're, you're very successful? Why are you pretending to know things you, you don't know, right? Uh, you're not fooling anybody who's actually done it. You're, it's as obvious as walking in in shorts when everybody else is wearing pants the second you open your mouth. And I just wanted to put my finger on that point because you so eloquently put it there. That like, let's make it a little bit more explicit. Thank you. In fact, let's go even more explicitly because you posed a question. Why do successful people do stupid things like that? 
It worries me. I have an answer for that. I would love to hear this because my I usually don't do business with them anymore. Yeah, That's and it's my not my role. answer. The answer came from Socrates. Uh, in in an exploration of the concept of Socratic ignorance, which is central to my life, humility is important. Knowing, questioning yourself. You know, I, I frequently characterize myself as an idiot savant, and I'm one mistake away from the idiot part. Um, <laughs> seriously. Um, it, you know, it keeps me grounded. It almost sounds more stoic, though, or is it like a combination of both? I no, don't know. It's, I, I think, well, well, for me, it, it might be it, it expresses my, my ongoing awareness of my fallibility and an acknowledgement of Socratic ignorance, reminding myself that there's plenty I don't know. Uh, given a level of knowledge, intelligence, achievement, we each make a choice. We can look down at others who know less, have accomplished less. And that's the arrogance cultivated in our universities today. And that's why we have educated people who are so shallow and so undiscerning. And it shows up in their politics and the way they vote. Yeah, just learn they, the answer. They've right? been indoctrinated yeah. and not educated. Here's the answer. Go take the test. Yes. Renaissance yeah. education and thereafter cause students to look up. They would look up at the universe that they do not understand. They would learn a certain level, and they would learn that they know so little about the world around them. And that is what caused the scientific and academic exploration of our world was the hunger, knowing that there was so much we did not know. And when you look up at the stars and creation, and you understand there's so much you don't know, regardless of my achievement to this day, I still feel humbled by what I don't know. So Socratic ignorance is the concept that best embodies that posture. And Socrates writes about the artisan's fallacy, to get back to the point. The artisan's fallacy is that an artisan, by virtue of the fact that he or she is successful in one little thing, now believes that they are a master of all things. Yeah, And that is the artisan's fallacy, and we see it today. We see successful doctors thinking they're good investors, or in good plumbers, or what have you. We see successful people in one specific domain Succumb to the artisan's fallacy. Sports stars do it all the time, right? Hmm? Sports stars. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Don't get started. They all end up poor at the end. Millions of dollars, they all end up poor. You know, years ago, I I commented, why do they interview sports athletes? They'll say the same thing. So, just saying. Um, (laughs) uh, So, that's it. What you've, you've described is called the artisan's fallacy. By Socrates, he wrote a, wrote about the artisan's fallacy. If you, if anyone wants to look it up, but that's it. We need to, regardless of how successful we've been, we need to humble ourselves uh, at any level. Any level of achievement requires humility when approaching new subject matter or any subject matter for that matter. That's, I think, the healthier way to grow. Hmm. All right, I like that because I, I do bump into those people. Ooh. You know, like why are you. I'll give you a case in point. People who are obviously intelligent and obviously know what they're doing, but then lie about what they have done. Yes. Like that's kind of like, mm-hmm. that's like that's makes me very nervous. I'm very, very likely not to do. In fact, I probably won't do business with that person because of what makes you so insecure or so like when you obviously have these abilities, 
but you feel you need to deceive people about what you've actually accomplished in the past, create like this false past, you know, like this false narrative. I'm like, that, like, that really bothers me. Like, well, that's telling it, it should bother you, but that's another modern affliction. Not that it always hasn't always been there, but today it's cultivated by this um, an emphasis on self-esteem. Self-esteem has nothing to do with the self. Self-esteem is a misnamed placeholder. You you familiar with what hormone therapy replacement is? A little bit, yeah. Well, a little bit meaning when your hormones run out, you know, due to menopause or something else, they start introducing hormones externally. Of course, there are some byproducts over time. You can cancer this, that, the other. Hormone replacement therapy has been controversial because the introduction of external hormones is ultimately detrimental. Well, I view my concept of um, self-esteem is that it's a poor replacement for self-confidence. Mm. And self-esteem is important, I think, in the young, temporarily introducing an external positive image while self-confidence is being built through actual achievements, modest achievements, but actual, actually building things, learning things. It's like a low-res and a high-res confidence, well, right? So self-esteem is like low-res no, confidence. Self-esteem is a fake confidence. Mm. Self-esteem is an externally, uh, an externally introduced reward. If you give it too long, it starts to become the only reward. People rely on the, the praise of others and the external reinforcement for what they do. And it becomes permanent. The ego, which, you know, a narcissistic ego is, which is being cultivated today as well in the schools, an emphasis on the self, the self, the self, combined with a, a an addiction to externally introduced praise causes people to do exactly what you describe. And regardless of their degree of accomplishment, unless they've got slammed on stuff that people go, whoa. In their own minds, they either they don't find their own experience to be impressive to themselves yet because they're comparing themselves to celebrities or someone else, which is foolish. So either they themselves feel insecure vis-a-vis their own benchmarks, others who are far more wealthy, or you yourself, and I like to play this game. I do a deadpan. I'm not easily impressed. I've seen so many things, and frankly, material accomplishments or cheating someone else don't impress me at all. So there are certain things people say to impress that don't impress regardless. But what I'll do when I run into people like you is I'll smile. And you know what? They'll ratchet up. It's like, well, that didn't impress them. I better come up with something else. Oh, that's So fun. you yourself yeah. can affect that outcome. <laughs> don't reward them. Don't give them the feedback. You know, See what, what they, they do. And yeah. see what they do. And yeah. watch them ratchet up. Watch them ratchet up because um, they will. And it's because of that, because they have a narcissistic predisposition and they're addicted to external reinforcement, external reward because of the emphasis on self-esteem. And that's the problem with many today, to take it a little further, is that people grab an opinion expressed by others because they know that that's the opinion. When they express it, they'll get their fix from their group. They'll get their fix. And that's why people will repeat the most absurd political statements because their circle is what they rely on to feel good. They need that fix, that bravo. It's all they have. They've got nothing else except that bravo every day. Oh, you did good. Yeah, you're one of us. And that's what they live for. 
scary, but people live that way. It's not a way to live. I think social media exasperates it a little bit, but it probably happened anyway, just in, it does. We see cliques and countercultures, you know, and subcultures that have done that traditionally, but it's far more significant today. Hmm. And social media allows for, um, the cultivation of a greater need, a more frequent need for that. They can't defer the need. So they get on, I'm going to say something that people will like. I'm going to say something stupid that I know my group will like. Yeah, it's time for my daily I'll get some likes. Time for my daily virtue signaling, right? Yeah, I like, want to be yeah. applicable. I don't yeah. want to be irrelevant. I need some rewards. Oop. So I'll make some trouble, say something stupid, absurd that people will react to. I got 50 likes. Oh, the haters are hating. I'm applicable. They like the, the hates too. They like the dislikes as much from the people that are not in their tribe. Because they're applicable. They're no longer irrelevant. The reality is they're irrelevant. But they feel like they're someone. Amazing. Yeah. Well, that's why I avoid them. I find that very oh, strange, yeah. right? Like, oof, geez. And that actually happens a lot. That's, you get a lot of strange. When you run a meeting for 11 years, you get a lot of strange people coming up to you that you just had not considered before. And you're just like, why, why are you doing that? Like, okay. You know, I'm just a person too. Right. Yeah. And don't worry, I've crashed two businesses and ruined everything. Like there's, I don't know what you think I am, but whatever you're doing is not impressing me and it's not working. And it's kind of weird me out, frankly, <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't know how to handle this. You yeah. know, like you're being very weird. Stop it. Yeah. There's no way you did 3000 houses. So how about we just shut up now? Yeah. Right. Like that happens a, a significant amount. Yeah. I derailed our conversation again with our side points. Oh, no, no. These are good real-life examples. Yeah, I do that. I do that often. I, what I'm trying to do, too, is – I don't know if it's going to work – is try and put a pull a smidge of philosophy into my real estate and business podcast as like a, as like a base. And I don't think there's anybody else really doing it, so I'm definitely – testing the market you're the lead so well, I, I think that i was intrigued you know i thought about when you when you, you invited me to do the podcast i know that real estate is central to your existence and i found real estate to be uh an area of well a great deal of interest for me you know being interested in abnormal psychology for one uh <laughs> we've seen some of that but when i again understanding commerce and understanding interaction and understanding concepts of value and the variables that are involved in transactions and disparate expectations, unreasonable expectations, uh, the mixed metaphor of emotional attachment versus value and all kinds of crazy things happen with especially residential real estate. Oh yeah. Crazy stuff goes on. First time home buyers are a mess. Like you got, it's almost like you're their therapist. And home sellers can be a mess too. Yep. I mean, I I've seen it and, it, it hasn't been lost on me before, but it caused me to reflect on the intersection between my philosophy and your battleground. And indeed, I see it's fraught with peril, but it's, it's, it's a fruitful area to draw some real-life examples for what we see. I mean, the conceptualization of value in real estate is significant. And I, I was reflecting only last night on the metaphor, you know, the merchant taking something from where it's valuable, from where it's you know, common to where it's valuable. Well, we've done the same thing in the collector's market with um, collectibles. Take a restored vehicle versus an unrestored vehicle. You may be in the same small community, but the buying pool for a vehicle, an inexpensive vehicle that needs restoration versus a vehicle that's gone through complete restoration, those buyers have never met. 
they might as well be in totally different continents. And I, I see the same thing with home buyers. I see that the type of buyer, the mindset of someone who's going to buy a fix me up versus person who wants a move in ready house. Now you're nailing it. Style. Yeah. They might as well be in alternative realities. They're not even speaking the same language. Exactly. Yeah. And someone who can bridge those worlds, someone who can buy in a flip environment. The idea of flipping a house is the ancient world of the merchant. You're taking something from somewhere where it's common or less valuable and you're moving it, transforming it to someplace where it's now of value. But you're doing it without moving geographically. So you need to be careful because there are constraints, geographic constraints. There's a top perceived value. I mean, values go up, but not radically. So you're going to have a world that's going to put caps on your existence, like appraisers and stupidity, you know, with, with this false sense of, with this false inertia of value. They're going to subjectively cap a value no matter whether you, you can line the bathtub with gold. Yeah. And they'll still cap the value based on this bureaucratic formula of preconceived value. Values go up, but they don't allow for values to rise as quickly as they allow for values to fall. Well, to your point earlier, I'm going to tie back to like an hour in the podcast when you, you said, well, this is how much time and money I have into it versus what it's actually worth. A lot of investors make that mistake. Ooh. Well, I've been doing this for six months. I put in X amount of work. Well, you should have started with what we know the end value was very likely or very close to being. Just because you put in that amount of money doesn't mean you're getting it back out. You know, like that's not how it works. Yep. You just, just nailed it right there too. I hope, I hope. I'm not being too redundant for people listening. I don't want to dumb Hopefully, it down, I but at the same time. Home, though. Okay, I yeah. I think you're driving them home. Um, that, and that's important because sometimes the, the attachment is not so obvious. Well, this is my first podcast like this. So I don't want to make, make it too where, they, where it just goes over their head or they don't see the point if I don't put the finger no, I'm on it. you're driving it. home yeah. because then you, you're getting it. It makes sense. It makes sense for everyone else. Yeah. It's funny. I used to describe things back in Greece and I had an assistant. And I would say something and she would – Follow up with, what did the poet say? And then she'd explain in other words what I just said. It's just like, it's like, okay. It could be an annoying way to have a conversation. I'm going to have to go back and listen to this. It's like, did I do too much? Did I not do enough? I think I'll probably get feedback on the podcast yeah, no, too. Good. Yeah, good. That feedback is, is yeah. welcome. You know, we can make this a habit if it becomes a big hit. So. Yeah. I just want to put a finer point on it because I do think there are a lot of parallels here and it's kind of all the same thing, isn't it? We're just selling different stuff. And it's kind of all the same stuff, value, as you put. And it is subjective. It is. And I measure intelligence a number of ways. One I've already described. The ability to detect a pattern. Patterns don't lie. The ability to detect a pattern is a sign of intelligence. Another important sign of intelligence for me, metric of intelligence, is how many variables can you juggle? Real estate has a lot of variables. Yeah. And they're conflicting variables. How do you weigh those variables? How do you know which scenario you're in? Where you've got egos in the way, you've got sentimentality in the way, you've got uh, – there are competing principles in all commerce. Some are monolithic, but very few. Um, I understood that real estate was problematic at a young age when my father failed because he failed in the interpersonal component. For some reason, he was spending all this time showing houses and people would go off. They were not faithful or loyal to him. They were not acknowledging his time spent and would go off and buy a house elsewhere with another agent. 
And my father didn't understand the reality of that. He was embittered by it and he gave it up. He was, you know, a more a simpler man, not terribly sophisticated in those matters, but he expected a cause and effect. He expected a loyalty based on his expenditure of energy. Yeah, no. Period. It comes to how much value you actually add to them and how they perceive that value yes. too. Yeah. And I saw it. I saw him go through the drill, get his, you know, his real estate license and sign up with Chamberlain and do it part-time. And I remember, I remember it very clearly. And it was a lesson learned. And I, Well, I think this is a good lesson for a lot of people beginning things. Right? Yes, very much so. That, that's, that's powerful. I wonder how many people get in and out of business just because their idea of value is fixed. It's not a flexible thing. It's not something open to interpretation or new evidence, right? Oh, it's more, it's more fatal than that, I believe. Yeah. I think far too many people commingle the definition of value and effort. Yes. Effort does not equal value. No, unfortunately. No, your effort, you know, might be meaningful to you, but don't brag about how much effort you put into something. Don't spend your time on it. Don't feed your ego. Don't feel better about it. How much effort you put in is an alibi. If you're falling back on effort, you've failed already. That's the reality. It's funny you said that because I tried to save my second business by working 20 hours a day for a year and a half, no days off. Guess what? There are some problems so big you can't fix them with hard work. Yeah. I had to learn that one the hard way, right? Yeah. To your effort versus value situation, right? My ego yeah. said hard work will solve all problems. And I threw my body and my life into it for a year and a half. And not only was it still a failure, I drugged that failure out over a longer period of time and made it worse. Yeah. Another great example. Unfortunately, I've done a lot of these stupid things. Christos. <laughs> well, <laughs> makes it easier to put a point on it because I could just talk no, about it, me it, instead of somebody it's, else. It's great when yeah. you can learn from others' mistakes, and I have. I've, I've fortunately been close enough to enough people in some high stakes situations. I was invited in to try to automate failing businesses, and I would, in fact, I have a lot of insights. I was in the golden age, what I consider the golden age of, um, software development and the dark ages of computing. They were both occurred at the same time. Um, it was the golden age for me because I was frequently invited because I speak both languages. I'm not a rubber room programmer. I understand the world. I understand business systems intrinsically. I, I understand things very quickly, but I understood the technology. So I was invited at the right hand of presidents and founders and all kinds of executives to sit right there and learn the way a business works so that I could automate it, so I could computerize it. So I was given the fast track, like the fast track apprenticeship in umpteen different industries. I can't even begin to explain how helpful that was in terms of it's like I've lived a hundred lifetimes. And a lot of those businesses were looking to the automation to help them survive. So I've seen a lot of sad stories and I've seen a lot of sad interpersonal dynamics, tank businesses. I've seen employees that weren't measured correctly because automation was introduced and uh, it Automation either obscured a bad employee or condemned a good one. I've seen so many sad dysfunctional stories um, where, like what you described, and fortunately I've been able to recall those. So I've made many mistakes myself, plenty, trust me. But I've had the benefit of learning from the mistakes of others additionally. You know, it, there's so many – I think this podcast might just be for me today. I don't know. <laughs> so – I never wanted to be a realtor. I started as an investor. 
I rapidly grew a disdain for realtors, real estate agents, and the industry at whole because they didn't really, and I still don't think 90% of them offer a real value, and I can't wait till they're selling pencils out of a cup on the side of the road. And then fast forward, and then wait a second, I'm a realtor, and I did it for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons I hadn't considered that wasn't even on the table that actually opened to your point too of being open to opportunities, right? that I didn't even consider a value was getting to work with people way better at me than in, in investing or in business or in some other part or just a different look at it. And having done 180 listings in the last two and a half years, the average realtor does four deals a year, right? So essentially... I wasn't looking at it right. I got I got paid to audit all these successful investors and landlords and apartment people and all sorts of people, right? I got to see how they run their business, add value in a real way. And that wasn't even a benefit I had actually considered on top of being paid. I got this priceless experience and knowledge, or what I like to call, I do a lot of sports metaphors, a lot of at-bats, right? Mm -hmm. I got to swing at a lot of, a lot, a lot more negotiating opportunities mm -hmm. to succeed and fail at, a, many more ways of approaching a deal, seeing how they establish value and how they determine value, and all these ancillary, this huge ancillary benefit that I never even considered when I started. Actually, it turns out to be one of the most valuable things when I realize where the true value of what I do is actually at. So let me tie that loop together because it felt like he's talking right to me. Christos is talking to me. Yeah, well, it's just us. <laughs> it is just us here. in this room, right? Then we're listening. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they got, we got, I've got about 2,000 people who listen. Not a huge number of people, but no pressure. There, there are 2,000 people listening, and that one felt like you were just talking right to me. So sorry to interrupt again, but well, it's no, funny it's very nice. how that, 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 come, that comes right back there. Value again being arbitrary. And, you know, I had one idea what the value was going to be, 6%, right? And how many of these did I got to do? Yeah. Turns out the most valuable thing wasn't even the 6%. Yeah. Value is arbitrary. Value is volatile. It truly is. It's amazing uh, how how a little bit of time, a slight change in the scenery, will affect the value. Uh, Detroit's bursts. a great example of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we see bursts of demand, bursts of inactivity. You know, lingering periods of inactivity. There's a cadence in life that can't be explained, but can be detected, and. You know, investors, market investors try to do that. They try to establish patterns that are predictable so that they can invest based on the pattern. Even though they have no insight into what causes the pattern, they're relying on the pattern, which is fine. It's not as good as insight, but you can get the job done. Well, life is complex enough that there are certain group phenomena that cause bursts of activity and lags, ups and downs. And they're there. And there's a mystery as to how they occur. There's insight into many of them. Um, you know, and as a social scientist, I, you know, pursued a lot of that. But I still know that there's a great deal of mystery. But you can detect, you can detect it. You can feel the change in energy, the, the change in momentum. And I, I seem to detect that a lot in real estate. And there's a lot of self-fulfilling prophecies going on. 
there's a lot of um, uh, seems to be secondary influences on markets based on hearsay and gossip and this yes. and the other. It's scary. So this, I hate to throw this out, but I don't know another way to describe it. Consumer confidence mm-hmm. really plays a huge part, especially in first-time home buyers. Yes, right. It's now a good time for us to buy our first home. Back to your other point too, perceived, you know, risks or value or however we want to classify it, real or not, often not real, but real enough to affect a real industry because they're not making a purchasing or selling decision based upon this perceived whatever risk or usually psychological, right? Ooh, GM just laid off 6,000 people. Maybe we should wait a few more years and see how this goes out. Oh, there's a trade war. Oh, interest rates went up a quarter of a percent. But then if you pull out on the timeline, but they're historically way below average, right? But right now, oh, they went up a quarter percent. You realize 18 years ago, we were paying seven and a half percent and everybody still bought homes. But now I can't afford as much. Like there's all sorts of those kind of things everywhere. They don't reconcile these things in their minds. They really don't. So there's all perceived risks. There actually aren't real risks. And then they ignore real risks. Well. By not getting a home inspector or something like that, right? Like, oh, yes. what are you doing? Sure. What yeah. are you, nuts? You, I just, you just traded one imaginary problem for a real problem yes. to save $350. Yeah. Riddle me that one. Yeah, you Pennywise know? and Pound Foolish. Yeah. It's Happens all the time. Absurd. You know, and I can I can see that because people overextend themselves in these, you know, aspirations of owning a home, and then they're suddenly tightening up because they have sicker shock. I spend all this money, I have to economize somewhere, and they economize in the absolute worst places. Yep. And the comedies that I've seen, I fortunately I had an inspection. I almost bought a house in uh, Farmington Hills. Beautiful, beautiful Tudor, huge, sprawling with this sprawling yard. Well, the yard was so sprawling, it turned out that it was two lots. And the second lot was not included in the sale, Ugh. which I might have been able to chew. But the septic field was in the second lot. That's a problem. Yeah, so the whole thing tanked, yep. of course. But if I hadn't had it inspected properly, you wouldn't have known uh, there wouldn't that. have been mentioned. You would have been very that. sad. Oh, yes. I would have had a house without a septic field. I yeah. would have had to put a new one in on the lot, and that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So $15,000 later. Yeah, no joke. But here's you know a funny story. Um, my parents... And I think this will happen to me as well. And people who buy now, people don't understand history. Yeah. In 67, we moved into our house in Southfield, custom-built home. And my parents had a mortgage at 5-ish percent. We all know what happened in the subsequent period, entering the 70s, when interest rates went up. Well, my parents, my mother especially, was proud that she paid off the house in five years. Pride only goes so far. Guess what happened? Within a couple of years of buying the house, the interest rate on the bank account was like 8 9%. The interest on the mortgage was 5%. By paying the mortgage, yeah. she lost 3%. Yep. Foolish. We've set, up, set ourselves up for the same circumstance. Um, I can actually buy an annuity today that pays more. It might be... BIPs, it's not a full percentage point, but it still pays more than my mortgage rate, my interest rate on my mortgage today. And that's the circumstance we find ourselves in. Even at 5% today, 6% today, it's possible that you could buy a mortgage today 
and find yourself earning more on that money in the bank than on the mortgage. Yep. Do it. I've seen it with my own eyes as possible. So anyone out there who's, you know, who's looking at this relativism the wrong way, the mortgage rates are up. They're not up. This is nothing compared to the rates we expect. Well, I also had friends. So I saw everything happen in the crash, right? Where people short sailed or got foreclosed who didn't have to, but because the values dropped, they still want, then it's no longer worth it. Right. Yeah. People like me who didn't act fast enough and it happened so fast, you just got wiped out. I had too many projects going and then value just dropped down. But then I have a couple of friends who didn't panic at all, bought at the absolute worst time, 2004, 2005, held on throughout the entire thing. Their rents went up. They made more money. They wrote out the whole thing and then they sold at the end of 12 years later and made an enormous profit. Yeah. While during that entire time period, they lost over half the value, air right. quotes value for people listening, value in their home. So also over what period of time? And let me tell you, for as many transactions that I've done, they're way ahead of where I'm at too. So who's the genius here, right? And there's people who panicked right. and just dumped everything, 40, 50 properties, declared bankruptcy. It's never going to come back, right? Like, so problems over time too. And he just, several people I know, just calm and steady. They didn't buy much during that time. Yeah. For the first couple of years, waiting sure. to see what was going to happen, but they held on. I'm sure, you pull in subsistence mode. Yeah, their rent went up, they so they started making and more money because all these people that yep. moved out of houses needed to move in somewhere. Yep. So, they sales they, went down, rents went up. Went, I mean, went in a great position. Wrote out that whole thing, yeah, doing the opposite of what everybody told only them so, to do. So many basements available yeah. from the parents. So some it's people crazy. still needed to rent. Yeah. 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 So that that's another point to, and I got to see that over time too. That's another reason I'm way more patient. I try and think in. Quarter centuries now, rather than quarters of years. Well, yeah, unless you've got, unless you're in a regulated environment where you're forced to liquidate because of some stupid mark-to-market um, valuation stupidity that you see in in exchange, you know, securities. Um, the value is theoretical. The value of a house, the stated value of a house, is as good as an appraisal, which are frequently lousy. I know. Until you sell it, when you the value of a house is what you can sell it for. If you're compelled to sell it on that given day, then you're now embracing that value. Yeah. Keep until it's worth more. Wait. Especially with real estate. The only factor that affects that that uh, you know, that math is what happened in Greece, unfortunately. They went into essentially punitive taxation. The only assets that the Greeks couldn't hide and move out of the country to avoid the punitive measures on the part of the Germans was real estate. So the Greeks up the taxation, the special assessments on real estate to the point where the Greeks couldn't afford them. So they couldn't afford to wait. The values went down because of the duress economy, but they were forced, they had an knife to their throats. So many Greeks had to sell. They were forced to sell because their cash flow crisis was exacerbated by the high real estate taxes. And that was a formula for disaster. And that was intentional to get the Greeks to liquidate valuable assets at the lowest. They, they cultivated a fire sale in Greece that caused Greeks to suffer tremendously. I wonder why they're – I thought they're – I swore there was going to be a freaking revolution when that happened. And there should have been. It didn't. I'm disappointed. I, I was really too. Am. Maybe it hasn't happened yet. Maybe I'm being impatient, right? Not no, a long enough period of time. Off it's, it's too late. Too late? I, I don't have – I still enjoy my life there, but I have no hope for the future really in Greece. The, the, the reconstructed Greece of the future will belong to the foreigners. Huh. The Greeks will be renters. Kind of sad for the whole Greek 
dysporia, right? Which yeah. is basically all across Asia, all across Europe, all the way to the yeah. New World, yeah. right? And well, now the Greeks are doing well everywhere but Greece. Yeah, now not Greece. Yeah, that's interesting. It is, but the saddest part of the whole thing is that I've seen that movie replay over here, over and over. I've seen the um, the deterioration of of um, which which we call it civics and understanding of who we are as a country, the understanding of uh, free markets, the understanding of capitalism, the misunderstanding of capitalism, this fallacy of social justice that does not exist. Who who in the right mind? I mean, look, as a student of history and a you know behavioral social scientist, um, I acknowledge and I understand the root cause of a lot of these this doctrine over the course of history has been abuse of power. That's the older profession. The oldest profession is the oppressor. Second oldest is the prostitute. Yeah. Um, man has been oppressed since the beginning of time. Um, all injustice, all social, all institutionalized injustice, which is what social injustice means, has occurred with the permission or the active participation of government. Without exception. Without exception. And now we have a generation suddenly that, not suddenly, but we have a generation that believes that government is the solution for social injustice. Government is the perpetrator, without exception, of social injustice, and you're looking to the government to, to fix that? Are you nuts? Well, it's kind of like an oxymoron too, right? Social yeah. justice. Yeah, like hello. We didn't just fight for millennia to yeah. create the individual and not be guilty yeah. of your parents. And, not, and, and then they just want to embrace yeah. it again. If you've sacrificed a single individual, yeah. then there's no collective yeah. justice, no social justice. Salvation is individual, so is justice. The rights of the individual cannot be offended and that's and still say you've created a donut of social justice. Well, we've, we've sacrificed this individual or these few individuals for whatever reason, but we have collective justice in spite of that. No, that's not how it works. Social justice is like peaceful war. Yeah. Right? yeah like yeah. what the hell are you talking yeah, about? Yeah. yeah, yeah no, yeah. that's not, war is not peaceful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Neither is group justice, justice. Right. All right. Not. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly it. So, these are the unfortunate things we see in Europe, and I'm hoping that we'll embrace individual freedom, individual responsibility, individual dignity here so that we can thrive as we have. And I think that things are, in spite of the um, all of the noise and insanity and the rabid dogs among us, I think that uh, things are looking up. And frankly, the math, you know, to get back to real estate as an observer – and an owner of certain extraneous properties all over the place now, unfortunately. <laughs> um, I see, you, unless you plan to live out of a box or a parent's basement, knowing that you have a baseline rent that you'll need to pay at these interest rates, I think it would be foolish not to buy a property and see, I see a dynamic where the arrogance of the seller is being um, undermined a little bit by the mixed signals coming out of the markets. So this this turmoil in real estate, is probably to the advantage of the buyer. Yes, it is. Is my net um, evaluation. You would be correct. We are definitely, I don't know if we're there yet, but we're driving that way, mm-hmm. right? Like I could see it. Because we saw inflated yeah. we saw inflated expectations on the part of sellers. We saw that, oh, it's a great market. Everyone's going to want to buy. So this these conflicting signals, considering the baseline of rent anyway, you need some place to live. Hello. And the, the interest rates are comparatively low still. Yeah, I think that was my estimation as an outsider and glad to hear that you agree. 
So, well, and more government regulation too, I think is coming down the pipeline. Um, and that's always going to hurt owners more than it hurts buyers until you become an owner. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of pass that on to the, to the next person. So seeing, seeing how that's going. Yeah. We're definitely, uh, what would we call it? We call it a shifting market, Mm. right? We're transitioning, whatever you want to call it. We're heading from, we're leaving a super hot seller's market and we're transitioning towards, I don't know, maybe call it a new, we'll hit a neutral market first and then we'll have to see if it goes to buyer's market. I think it probably will only because historically just, unless we're going to set a record, this is the second longest seller's market in the history of America, I believe. Hmm. So for it to continue, we're going to have to compete with the number one spot, which would be two more years. So beyond that, speaking in patterns means, hey, we don't know exactly what it's going to do, but we have a good idea based on patterns what actually happens. Well, it depends on your your metric for seller's market. Uh, rates continue to appreciate, which I believe they will. I believe the first casualty, again, as a methodologist, not in the not in the field necessarily, but as a methodologist, what I see tells me that the first thing to suffer will be uh, days to sale. Yeah, days on market. So we call uh, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, days on market, which is fine. Again, already my, increasing. My Very astute, sir. Yeah. Well, it made sense that that would be the first variable. But yep. for those who are not in a hurry, remember my thing: he who Yep. has the most patience, wins. It's still a seller's market in my mind because prices will appreciate regardless. Well, we're definitely still more sellers than we are yep. buyers. So realtors define it differently. Mm-hmm. How we look at it is if – so traditionally, right, mm-hmm. days on market, the time it actually takes to sell your house is something like four to six months, mm-hmm. right? We're way below that. But it was lower. And now it's going higher, right? Yeah. And we're always looking backwards. And we, I still don't even have good data, but I can pinpoint when it shifted in my business, which was the second week of August. Mm-hmm. From the second week of August, my showings dropped in two months by 80%. Hmm. But I also saw inventory. It almost reminds me of like my macroeconomics class where prices and price per square foot finally hit a price that a lot of people who are – unwilling landlords or maybe we're waiting or we're tied to, oh, there's now enough value. It's worth us. So then you saw inventory in some areas double and triple. Good example is an East English village with a client of mine. When we took a look at the market, there were seven competing properties. Two and a half months later, when we went on market, there were 33. That quick. And that almost reminds me of my macroeconomics class when you're talking about market saturation and yeah. now everybody finally got the price and now everybody's yeah. in, right? And now yeah. now we have way more inventory. So, I mean, buyers have more to look at. So, now it's slowing down the process and the days of market yeah. are going up. Yeah. Interest rates keep going up at the same time. Potential of additional regulation top down with some layoffs and now everybody's kind of like, Ooh, hold on a second. Yeah. Well, you remember, have you seen the mechanical governor on an, on an old cell engine with the weights? No. That, well, it's, it's the funniest thing because as the engine starts spinning faster, the weights are propelled by their weight further out and they're on little levers. So they push a pin down into the engine to restrict fuel. And as the engine speed drops, the weights fall and lift the lever mm. and accelerate, you know, and increase the amount of fuel. It's a mechanical governor. 
But you see that frenzied pace of either listing or buying will affect, that's the weight that affects. So you see this, this talados, you would call it in Greek, uh, this, um, this pendulum effect. And sometimes it's like this, and sometimes it's wild swings, depending on the enthusiasm of either party. Now, what I see is the, the lesser enthusiasm on the part of buyers, especially if they're buying up, into a higher class of home, probably had to do with the confidence related to the value of their 401k. Yeah, because probably. we had a precipitous fall. If all they saw was the value fall, that rationally, their, their, their net worth and their confidence, their, not their generalized amorphous you know, uh, consumer confidence, but rather their own confidence based on their own 401k value would have chilled their enthusiasm based on their net worth. And that probably had very little to do with their cash flow. So it was probably more of an emotional reaction, which means they may get over it very quickly, especially now since we see things climbing right back up where we expect them to go. So I expect that that buying interest to return. Uh, interest rates have not increased to the point where it would create another dampening effect to overcome the recovery from the first, the 401k perception. Um, the buyers, I think it's good that the buyers – have been, I mean, the sellers have been smacked a little bit because they were over exuberant and I think well, they overpriced. Certainly, some still are. I know. Some people are diehards. I appreciate it though from a just complete, this sounds terrible, but the more realtors doing a bad job, the better my listing looks. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah you know, because I am a mercenary to a certain extent, right? A seller right, hires yeah. me to extract as much value out of this thing as possible. It's about the merits. Not a good strategy for their clients, though, obviously, right. to yes. make the perceived value of my listing greater yes. by your incompetence or your unwillingness to confront your seller, right? Yes. One of the two. No, as someone selling a product, I always like to see a competitor do something yeah. unrealistically high. Makes me look better. Yeah, oh, yeah. Makes me look better all the sure time. Enough, yes. Yeah, everybody's right. always. So part of me wants them jobless, and the other part of me is like, well, maybe not too many of them jobless, you know? Yes. <laughs> enough <laughs> need to stick around. Yeah, exactly. Right. To there's make a, my well priced listing appear even more yeah. valuable than it really is. Indeed, yeah. yeah. Fortunately, I don't think I have to worry about that because everybody, yeah. that's one thing, everybody tries to sell real estate like used cars. That's. Well, we're going to start up here. Well, it's not a good idea to ask 20% more than something's worth just because you're attached to it. You know, yeah. they tend to do that with houses. Well, we'll start high and we'll barter down. You know, people don't write offers if it's too high, more to your behavior. I have this argument all the time with sellers. Yeah. That's not how the real world works. Well, if they like it, they'll make an offer. No, they won't. No, they won't because your you price will, too high because so many people come back offended by ultra low offers yeah. and they're used to that. They've been conditioned yep. to think that. An offer is too low, but they would never accept an R offer because mm -hmm. they're they're thirty grand too high. So that right. plays into that part again too. All right, we're at three hours and thirty four minutes. Ah. So let's wrap it up. <laughs> is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't talked about? And it could be anything. You could plug something, your service. It could be an idea you've been thinking about, something you want to share. It could be anything. This is like your unscripted moment although i may ask a question if it's interesting well you know it's, it's it's funny i think um i've probably given away my central interest in life everything I've, i like to talk about even though i use it in my business and my business has certain a uh, certain concise mission it's a focused mission you see that i i like to apply these principles to pretty much everything in life uh and the challenges of making something from something less 
the challenges of creating creating wealth, creating a product, um, transforming something, negotiating something. All of these are the same thing for me. So I guess the thing I like to drive home is regardless of your clay, regardless of the object of your affections, your pursuit, is it real estate? Is it technology? Is it literal clay? Uh, is it anything at all? Collectibles, any kind of a product, any kind of pursuit, the underlying elements of both your personal success and your occupational success are the same for me. So your growth really transcends your occupation. I think that's the key point. Um, and if there is something, if there's something pointed uh, of interest that addresses a challenge that you face and you need some input, uh, then, um, yeah, feel free to reach out. And um, maybe I can help tie a bow out of something for you. Um, I am available in in that capacity um, outside of my immediate pursuits of interest, uh, as, as you probably as you've probably uh, detected. I see truth everywhere. I see uh, I see something of interest everywhere. But that would be my message for everyone listening: um, find the elements of success, regardless of what you do. They are the same. Pursue those elements and embrace the chaos. Thank you, sir. I had a great time. I had a great time. And folks listening at home, if you enjoy this, I'm going to ask you to do something a little different than you normally would do. This is kind of like my, I've dabbled kind of what I, kind of the direction I would like to take. And I'm not saying I'm going to change my mind because sometimes I got an itch and I have to scratch it, but if you did enjoy this different take on the podcast, send me an email directly, jeremy at renegadedetroit.com, and let me know if you loved it. And I guess I should throw that out there, too. If you fucking hated it, let me know, too. Just throw that out there. I would like to know. I'm not guaranteeing I'm going to change my mind because I'm kind of scratching my own itch here, and I suspect it might be an itch some other people have, and we're going to find out i think over the next uh six months so i may have you back on because i had a great time all right folks if you want to get a hold of them i'm gonna go ahead and put a link i'm gonna go i don't have it right now but i'm gonna go grab his link for his linkedin account i'm gonna put it in the show notes for you so you can reach out to him um thank you so much for your time today i really do appreciate it my pleasure truly this is a lot of fun i had a lot of fun with this uh, hopefully it sounds as good And it played out as well as it did in real life, which I think it did. So, all right, folks, again, if you enjoyed this podcast, just a reminder to help me out, rate and review uh, on iTunes specifically, because that's where most of it comes from. But if you hate iTunes, you don't want to go there, rate and review on whatever app that you're uh, listening on. I do really appreciate it. Also share it across social media. If you have any questions for me or anything like that. Let me know. Reach out. Some of you like me to to chat with. I am careful about who I have on the podcast, but I'm always open to new people as well. Um, if you need your property listed and sold top dollar, go ahead and reach out to me too. 313-600-2133. And uh, if you're interested in attending any of the local meetings, again, go to renegadedetroit.com or meetup.com forward slash investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. You can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram too, at Jeremy Burgess. And as I wrap up this podcast, you know it's coming. I do it every time. I do want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent.
I know you suck. I suck. We all suck. They're distractions, mistakes. We're idiots, poisonous people. You got bad habits. Pick something, pick a goal, stick with it. Don't give up and do something every day to get you a little closer. And I also want to thank you very much for listening. I do appreciate your attention. I know it is valuable. And until the next podcast, until the next meeting, crush it.